How are we doing, Jamie? All good. All good. Same old, same old. <laughs> do you want to um, introduce yourself or do you want me to do it? Um, yeah, I mean, I can introduce myself. So I'm James Dixon. I'm a professional MMA fighter and, and coach out of Coventry, specifically Lions Gym. Um, I've got a professional record of two wins, one loss. Amateur record of six wins and no losses. Um, Christ, I'm trying to remember. Um, I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt under Braulio Estima. Um, I don't think that's probably everything that's worth noting. Might be a few, a few more bits, but that's probably about it. Yeah, I think you pretty much covered it as far as I could tell. Um, K1 amateur, one and zero. Yep, yep, yep. Sanshao, one and zero. Yep. Uh, Muay Thai amateur, o o and one. Yep. Um, couldn't get your jiu-jitsu record. As much no, as I no, tried, like I, said, I did have it. I did have it written at some point, but I've, I've seemed to have lost this, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, I've competed more so in the early days, like white belt, blue belt, and purple belt. Um, competed extensively, um, and then pretty much from that moment on, I was really focused towards the MMA. You know, so I sort of drifted away from the jiu-jitsu um, and focused more competing towards, you know, MMA and whatever striking martial arts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've definitely had. A lot of jiu-jitsu experience from white to white to purple. Is that something you'd go back to? Um, yes and no. I th- thing is, I mean, I'm a very competitive person. You know what I mean. So for me to go and compete in a jiu-jitsu perspective, I'd like to be giving my all to jiu-jitsu. Like I think it'd be different, right? They say like these super fights. I think they're quite interesting. You know, when you get two maybe MMA fighters that have a jiu-jitsu super fight, that would interest me. Um, but when we're looking at a competitive level, if I was to compete against jiu-jitsu practitioners, um, like I said, I'd want to be training jiu-jitsu as much as them to obviously give myself a chance to win, and that would mean taking away from my MMA training, obviously. So for me to compete um, properly in jiu-jitsu, I'd either A, want to be done with with, with my MMA training, a retired MMA, then maybe I'd focus more jiu-jitsu or maybe like a super fight, you know, against, like like I said, another MMA fighter where I feel like the playing field's a, a little bit more level, you know? Is there anyone local that that would interest you in terms of that? Oh, Christ, good question. I'm not actually too sure, to be fair. There's, um, just thinking off the top of my head, especially locally, have any MMA fighters with a, you know, a relatively high jiu-jitsu pedigree? Um, and I honestly can't think of many, not around my weight anyway. Um, so yeah, no, no one specifically. I mean, really, any MMA fight would intrigue me in a jiu-jitsu-specific matchup. But um, yeah, no, yeah, no, no names spring to mind. Who locally interests you in MMA then? Uh, fight-wise, um, I mean, I wouldn't say locally. Uh, locally, um, in terms of in the Midlands area, I can't think again of anybody massively off the top of my head. But I mean, when we look at locally in terms of the UK, then for sure, it's a little bit of a shame. He just got signed by the UFC. But Ian Gary, um, I'd love to fight this guy. Uh, Ian Gary and uh, Paddy Pimlet. Again, these are two names, you know, uh, that that I'd really enjoy fighting and matching up against. And to be fair, not because I dislike him, but Mason Jones, again, he's in the UFC. But just because I think that would be a cracking fight. I know Mason Jones comes to to fight and I, I really admire his um, warrior spirit and I just think like we would have a, 
an absolute spectacular fight. So Mason Jones, like I said, not because there's any animosity there, just because I respect him, um, you know, so much. But to be fair, Ian Gary and Paddy Pimlet wise, um, not, not a huge fan of these people. <laughs> <laughs> do you think? Do you think these people are aware that you you're on the scene? Um, no, Maybe it's probably a hard question not. for you to to answer. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I can only go through my perspective, right? And um, yeah, I can't imagine I'm I'm that big, especially in like the the that cage warriors and now UFC for all three of them, uh, scene where they would have they would know me. I mean, maybe they might recognize my face or maybe they would have seen a fight previously. Um, but I can't imagine it's something that they're, you know, I'm on their radar as such. But I mean, I can definitely say without a doubt I will be. You know, I'm very confident that, you know, um, I'll be in Cage Warriors 2022 and these people will start to see see what, I, what I'm capable of, you know. Have these conversations been had yet with Cage Warriors? Um, to some degree, not extensively again. Um, I mean, my management, they're, uh, they don't fill me in on all the ins and outs of conversations. And I don't really go asking, to be fair. But um, like I say, I'm very confident once I, I get past my next fight in October, I'm very confident Cage Warriors are going to want to, you know, want to have me on their show. So Cage Warriors is where you want to end up next. Yeah, so I, I've thought about this a lot, you know, like... Um, there was again when we talked to my management. There was the possibility of Brave being being um, interested in me, but um, you know, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't turn down a fight with Brave. Um, it is a big show, but just because I watch all of their shows for Cage Warriors, you know, I'm very accustomed to all of their 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 roster and their champions, and I just feel like it's so prestigious and it's obviously the gateway show to the UFC. Cage Warriors is what I visualize. You know, Cage Warriors belt is what I visualize. So this is something I, you know, I really want to pursue. Like I said, I would not say no to Brave. I would not say no to Bellator, etc. But Cage Warriors is just something that, um, yeah, is a big goal of mine. You know, I can't, can't, can't put my finger as to why other than just because I watch it so much, you know. Cage Warriors is a new um, lightweight champ, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So he won it just on the last show. Um, to be fair, he, he does look impressive. I forgot his name, an Irish guy. Um, but... I feel like who he took the belt from... Joe McColgan? Yes, yeah, that's the one. Um, he, he's been he's been hyped quite a lot, you know. Um, but again, the previous champ, um, who again just won the lightweight the lightweight belt, um, I wasn't impressed with, you know. I didn't feel like he was uh, that dangerous of a fighter. Sort of like a low-level grappler, but just tend to out-grapple people. So, I don't know. He's got a good record, but I don't feel like that's an impressive victory too much in terms of level. Um, but yeah, their champ has been hyped a lot. So I've not seen much of him. I can't pass judgment, you know, but um, I, I did see a little bit of the previous guy and I wasn't impressed. Is it just lightweight you're interested in then? No. So again, talk about Mason Jones. Um, I really like and liked Mason Jones's approach to how he went around Cage Warriors and then in turn the UFC. So Mason Jones started at welterweight. Um, he got the welterweight uh, belt in Cage Warriors. And then dropped to lightweight, won the, well, the the lightweight Cage Warriors belt, and then went over to the UFC and now fights at lightweight. And I think his idea was, um, again, forgive me, I might be mistaken, but I believe his idea was he's not a massively size, he's not a, he's not a massive welterweight, but he was very confident um, on the national scene he could smash welterweights. You know what I mean? And by fighting a bit na more closer to his natural weight, he could get more fights in. You know, he doesn't damage himself with the weight, etc. 
But then he knows when he gets to the UFC, he's going to have to cut weight to lightweight, right? Because, you know, the level's going to be higher. People are going to cut more weight. You know, people are, have got a bit more of a scientific approach with their weight cuts. So um, I think you're prepared by going lightweight just for one fight in cage while he's winning that belt um, and then making his way to the UFC and staying at a lightweight. And I like that approach, you know. Um, I'm, when I look at the welterweights in cage wise, I know where I stand. I'm, I'm very confident I can give a lot of them a run for their money. Um Obviously, should I get out out muscled, out strength or whatever, I will drop to lightweight. I can fight a lightweight, but just fighting at welterweight will give me more options. I can take fights a little bit more last minute. I won't need twelve weeks, for example, to to cut weight. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm going to go through a bit more of a Mason Jones approach. You know, look for that welterweight belt, drop to lightweight, and then go from there. See where the world takes me. You, as long as I've known you, you've been really interested in in the world of MMA in terms of your mentality towards weight classes and, and weight cutting, you like the weight cut. It prepares you. That's what you say. How do you feel it prepares you? Yeah. So, um, it's bizarre. It's almost like a, a ritualistic process. Um, you know, your body's almost preparing for war. I mean, there's no toys about it as well. It makes you, it fills you with rage. You know what I mean? So you definitely want to go in there and, and, and punch the dude for a, putting you through such a process but um even so i definitely feel like it prepares me mentally but i like the scientific approach as well you know trying to find um the the best method um i mean it's the same approach i have with fighting right like if i've got a problem when i'm sparring or when i'm fighting i'm always trying to think my way around it you know strategize my way around it and it's the same with weight cutting you know how how can i uh, more efficiently and effectively take the weight off then obviously replenish the weight and put the weight on. Um, so, yeah, not only do I feel like it, it it prepares me mentally for war, it's like I said, it's got that ritualistic process and it it, it gets, gets me to a certain headspace where I want to go and fight a guy. But, um, yeah, I, I enjoy the science behind it or the, the bro science behind it, at least. How did, how did you learn that process? Um, so I got, like, little bits of information from Jimmy. So Jimmy Warled has obviously cut weight extensively throughout his career. So he told me like little snippets of information. But we're talking years ago when I had my first sort of fight and I wasn't cutting much weight. I wasn't cutting really any weight. But like he would just tell me about the water load process. But it was very much just like surface information. It wasn't anything in depth. And even then we're talking this is like nine years ago. So the world of weight cutting was far more different than it was now you know so it was just sort of ah drink eight to ten liters of water a day you know whatever a week to two weeks out stop it a week uh, a day before the fight and then just like sit in a hot bath sort of thing you know it was it wasn't really a, a scientific approach like i said it was very i mean it still is bro science but it was even more bro science you know um and then you know I, as everyone does you know i've spent hours and hours and hours and hours looking on forums watching youtube videos um, reading books that other weight cut, you know, self-proclaimed uh, weight cut specialists have written, you know, uh, paid for PDFs, um, listened to podcasts, you know, I've, I've spent hours and hours and hours researching now um, what I feel is, is a very good method for myself of cutting weight. How much out of interest did you cut for your first amateur fight? Uh, my first amateur fight, interesting. You know, I can't even remember properly. So my first amateur fight, um, it was at featherweight, so what's that, about 66 kilo. Um, 
I wouldn't have. I would have probably been walking around anywhere from like high 60s to a 70. I don't think I would have been higher than 70 kilo. Like I said, I was only 18 years old. Um, and from memory, I probably competed at the 70 kilo bracket with a gi on. So again, I'd probably been about 68 to 70 kilograms. Um, but I do remember my, my opponent actually missed weight. So I got, got a phone call the day before the weigh-in saying that uh, he can't make weight and that we wanted a catch weight of 150 pounds. Um, so of course I accepted it because it was either yes and I, you know, I accept it and I fight or I don't accept it and I don't fight. And of course I'm going to fight, right? So um, yeah, he actually missed weight. I think I weighed in um, at the 145 pound limit still. He weighed in at 150 pounds. Um, but yeah, probably no more than a few kilos. And again, it probably would have been more so through uh, body fat, you know, um, than actual water manipulation. So you cut a lot of weight now when you when you go like you fight professionally. I mean, for your last few amateur fights, you were definitely cutting a lot of weight going into your amateur fights as well, right? Yeah. So again, this is an interesting thing in terms of um, my first few amateur fights. Um, from memory, again, yeah, no, hundred percent. We're same day weigh-ins, so you you couldn't really cut substantial amount of weight. Um, and then it was only until again, what I like to say. Indefinitely, but maybe my fifth, no, even that, maybe, maybe my fucking my, my sixth, my sixth, uh, my last amateur fight was maybe a day before weighing. Again, I can't remember, we were rewinding a clock, but um, a lot of my amateur fights were same day weighing, which obviously means you can't get a whole lot of weight because the lack of time to rehydrate. Um, and then it was, yeah, it was my maybe my last one and my last couple of fights were day before amateur weigh-ins um but now pretty much universally all amateur fights are uh, uh, other than the IMAFs um are day before weigh-ins um so I mean amateur wise I never cut substantial weight but obviously professionally this is where I've tried to push the boat out a little bit I've said it before um I almost want to try and use myself as a guinea pig and you know trial and error methods so when it comes to passing my knowledge on to my fighters um I've got more of a fine-tuned method. You know, I know what to do, what not to do, because I've been there and done it. You know, I've made the mistakes, I've, I've um, done things right, and I can pass that knowledge on, you know? It's interesting you start talking about your um, your, your fighters, like your, your students. Um, I know you've always been a very dedicated coach. Um, and I know that you, the way that your brain works is that's effectively half of, of what you do, is you teach, right? Mm-hmm. How do you strike, and, and I'm really interested, I don't know what kind of answer I'm looking for with this, how do you strike that balance between pursuing your professional career as a fighter and training for that? Because that, that's commitment on, it, on another level. And not only teaching your recreational, your casual sort of classes, but also preparing people, you know, who fought a couple of weeks ago. So Jack Bainan, Grant Shamar, you know, whoever over the years, how do you, how do you strike that balance? Um, so again, I've thought about this extensively because I've, I've seen and I've heard a lot of podcasts and videos, etc., of, of fighters saying that you cannot do both. Um, you know, it could be detrimental to your career being both a coach and a fighter. Um, so don't get me wrong. I feel that th let's just say the UFC comes knocking and they're offering me big money Maybe then I'll, uh, that might be a time where I've got to be a little bit more selfish. You know, I've got to focus on myself a little bit more, 
and I, I can afford to, you know, take a bit more time off and focus on my own recovery, etc. But I mean, as for now, um, I actually feel teaching it has given me so much benefit. It's forced me to um, break down techniques and make me understand techniques in a more in-depth level. But then it's also forced me to learn and grow myself, right? So when, you know, when you talk about Jack, Garon and Melissa and Christoph, when, when all these guys, um, you know, they've got a hunger for information and I'm not going to go out there and just give them, you know, um, I don't know, the same stuff over and over again. You know, I need to keep, keep, keep teaching them, keep their knowledge uh, and their understanding of MMA growing and it needs to be specific for their style, right? So it's um, forced me to, you know, study fights, to um, watch instructionals, to go out and find different coaches and learn from different coaches and really theorise different ideas and concepts and understandings to pass this knowledge on. So it's, um, like I said, it's, it's, it's actually, I feel, helped my brain and my fight IQ more than anything anything else, you know, more than me actually training. I feel like coaching has really developed my fight IQ. Um, but it also goes beyond that as well. I was, I was talking about this um, literally last week to somebody in terms of holding mitts. When I hold pads for people, like not only do you have like things like calf and shoulder endurance, you know, because I'm on my toes, I'm moving around and obviously I'm holding the pads up. So not only is it physically helping my endurance, in my opinion, but also reading a fighter as well right like um when you meet somebody you've got to judge distance and timing and everybody's got different rhythms so i've got to get accustomed to somebody else's rhythm just like you do in a fight um like if you've got a pad man and they don't understand your rhythm the pads are going to be pretty terrible so um by holding pads i've got a, a good understanding of people's rhythms now i could pick up people's rhythms very quickly not only do i feel like it gives me good endurance in my calves and my shoulders um, but it gets rid of any sort of flinch response as well. So I'm used to punches and kicks being thrown towards my head and keeping my eyes open at critical moments to see what's what. So, um, yeah, so not only, you know, fight IQ wise is training people helped me, but also holding mitts for people, I feel like has uh, given me a lot of benefit as well. You know, like some fighters train, what, let's just say two to four hours a day, you know, but I'm teaching people for, you know, two to four hours a day, then I'm training for, you know, two hours a day, three hours a day, whatever. Um, you know, that that's that's nearly seven hours there. You know, people might not consider teaching as training, but I mean, I'm reciting techniques in my brain. You know, I'm teaching it to other people. I'm holding pads. I'm moving around as if I'm sparring another individual. You know, I'm getting a lot. I'm getting a lot of working. You know, I'm not just sitting at home playing Call of Duty. You know, I'm I'm actually studying. I'm I'm planning lessons. I'm executing those lessons. It takes a lot, you know. I mean, you do sit at home and just play Call of Duty. Uh, yeah, I, uh, on God's day, on a Sunday. Uh, Sunday's my Call of Duty day. <laughs> and then every other day is Melissa's Love Island day. <laughs> yeah, uh, at the minute Melissa's dominating the TV with Love Island, so um, life is not good. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to be in that position. <laughs> um, so it all... What's, what's it like, because... I don't think a lot of people have this. What's it like not only living with, but being the coach of and the fiance of a now professional fighter? How does that relationship dynamic work? If you don't mind yeah, no, going so, into I mean, that a bit. For me, it's never been a problem. I've, I feel like I've always been managed to separate coach and like a you know, fiance girlfriend. 
um, without too much of a problem. It's definitely been something that Melissa's struggled with. And to be fair, I've seen it with bizarrely girls extensively. Like, um, I've had to train my friends' girlfriends on a number of occasions because... And and when I say my friends is in my training partner sort of thing. Um, so they've got the capability to train their girlfriends, but their girlfriends just do not listen to them. You know what I mean? They'll say, oh, jab cross. And their girlfriend would instantly argue. You know, it's very strange. So then they've actually had to pay me to train their girlfriend or their wife, whatever, because they just, they can't do it, you know? Um, so I've seen Melissa struggle with that at the beginning, you know? Like I said, I'll, I'll try and coach her and she just will not listen, um, will not respond to me. Um, so much so where I've sort of pushed her towards other coaches or I have to get her to come to a class so there's other people in the room so she can't chat back to me so much, you know what I mean? Um, but especially during lockdown, this is one of the benefits lockdown has had. Um, it's forced her to only train with me. So I think she's had her back against the wall. You know, she's not had the luxuries of the other coaches and the other training partners. So she realises she has to listen to me. And um, I like to think without, you know, blowing smoke up my own ass, this is where we've seen Melissa have the most progression, um, especially in her striking, was this, this last year. You know, if I watch back at her old fights and her old pad work videos compared to how she's hitting pads now and how, how obviously her recent performance was, um, it's night and day difference. And we're talking about a year space. And I like to think it's because she's actually listening to me, she's responding to me, but then also she's coaching herself as well. So all those things I just talked about in terms of um, the benefits coaching has on your fight IQ and, like I said, your flinch response, etc. She's um, discovering those benefits as well by coaching herself. So, um, yeah, it's, um, we've managed to finally start to, to work around these um, obvious boundaries, being in a relationship. Um, but where the problem still lies is when she cuts weight because <laughs> she's not her when she's hungry. It's, uh, the, the house is volatile, you know? It's like walking, walking on, on TNT, you know, walking on glass, whatever you want to refer to it as. You know, it's um, not a pleasant experience being in a house with a hungry Melissa. <laughs> and then she goes outside. Oh, God. <laughs> Very different person. Very yeah. different person. Um, so then you get really interesting situations like we had, what are we, just two weeks and a couple of days removed from um, everyone's fights in Wolverhampton. You know, I mentioned Jack, I mentioned Garon, obviously Melissa, yourself, all fighting on the same, effectively the same card. Two shows, but same day, same card. Um, how was that for you as a coach? Um, as, as a, and also, more importantly, I guess, as a, as a fighter, firstly seeing two of you, your best students make their amateur debuts and then you know your fiance who is also one of your best students make her pro debut and then co-main eventing the card at the end of the night how, how does that how does that feel how does that work um for you yeah so um i was talking to raj about this prior to when we got the foot so we're like 12 weeks out from this event and we sort of agreed that i wasn't actually going to corner anybody um we sort of agreed that we'd got the coaching team in place and the coaching structure in place where uh, I wouldn't need to be in the corners. But again, I was sitting and just um, contemplating things and I thought, well, I'm not going to want to be sitting backstage while my fighters are fighting. You know, I'm going to want to watch the fights. But then if I'm going to watch the fights, I might as well corner them. You know what I mean? That was basically the thought process behind me. Um, so... That's how I ended up cornering them. The plan wasn't to corner them, but like a few weeks out, like I said, I contemplated it and I thought, 
I'm going to, I'm not going to just be able to sit back and not do anything. You know, I'm going to want to be there. Um, so it's going to be more mentally destructive just sitting backwards or, you know, sitting back in the crowd or not watching them at all than actually being in the corner. Um, but then also, I mean, just a lot of people think that cornering takes a lot of energy away from you. But again, when we talk about studying, I study and I watch a lot of, in my opinion, experts, some of the best MMA coaches, again, not coaching too much anymore, but your Greg Jackson, your Fraz Zahabi, your Trevor Whitmans. And if you watch these characters in the corner, they're very composed, very calm. Like when you see one of Trevor Whitman's champions win, he's, you know, the whole corner's going absolutely crazy and Trevor Whitman just sort of stands up and nods. You know, he's very, very composed. And this is something I like to feel I emulate now in the corner is is that calmness, um, that composure, um, almost taking emotion out of it to some degree and you're just going in there with a calculated game plan. Um, so being in the corner, I know, doesn't mentally and physically drain me too much. Um, and like I said, I knew that being in the corner was going to be better for me mentally than being backstage. But then all that being said as well, I actually found it to be, uh, it, it was a far better experience. Like a lot of fighters will advocate the worst thing about fight day is the waiting around, you know, like you get there early, you've got to do your medicals, your rules meeting, all this type of, all the all these things. Um, and then you just got to sit there, you know, you might watch a couple of fights and you just sit in there. You, know, you might go and speak to a few people, like, you know, come and watch you watching your fight. But it's just, it's a long waiting game and it's very tedious, you know, it wears on you. But when I actually had stuff to do, you know, I had people's hands to wrap. You know, I did a little bit of pads with Melissa. Obviously, I walked them to the cage. I was in there for the corner. It just, um, it broke up the monotony of fight day um, and made things far more fun and made them, you know, a little bit quicker. Um, so I actually, I actually enjoyed it. Also, to be fair, talking about it, um, I'd walked to the cage. What, when I had went into the fight, I'd already walked to the cage three times that night. So um, it also made the walk to the cage to second nature. And I've talked about this to, before with a few people um, in a sense of I've not had an extensive amount of fights, but if we take into consideration all the people I've cornered and the amount of times I've actually walked to the cage and been in the cage and smelt the environment, seen the environment, felt the environment, you know, I'm... I'm very much a veteran of the game. You know, I consider this all all experience. You know what I mean? You, you get the experience of the lights. You get the experience of the nerves, um, of the feel, everything. You know, the crowd. Um, so, yeah, when when it got to me actually walking to the cage, like I said, it was, um, it was nothing different because I'd already done it literally three times that night. I understand completely what you mean in terms of get to a venue, you know, as a musician, get to a venue. We call it hurry up and wait you got to get there, got to get there, need to get there by this time. And then you stand around and sit around for, for hours, you know, not doing much. Um, I understand how the nerves can build up if you don't find something to do, which is, you know, I always make sure if I'm playing a gig, I've got something to do. It's almost so that I don't even think about the gig until the, the second I walk on stage. Um, do you think there are any negatives to to being distracted though I mean obviously you were very successful on the on the night but do you maybe you're a very um you, you I, I know you evaluate a lot of, of when it comes to you know s strategies and preparing and performance and stuff like that do you, do you think there are any any negatives to that that you could you could foresee yeah so I feel like um don't get me wrong if we start to get higher level 
So let's just say all four of us were fighting very tough opponents, let's just say in the UFC, right? Um, and we had specific game plans in place. Because, I mean, none, nobody had a, a very specific game plan. You know, like we sort of had ideas of where we wanted the fight to take place. Um, but because, again, it's all very low-level low amateur or low-level pro, um, we can't say conclusively how the opponent's going to come out and how the fight's going to take place. Um, so, like I said, they were very broad game plans. It was nothing massively specific, uh, myself included. Um, but should there come a time and place when we do have specific game plans and things might be a little bit more mentally exhausted and we, we might need better preparation in the warm-up, um, maybe then everyone fighting on the same show might not be the best idea, you know what I mean? Cause, because it will be a little bit more mentally draining. And, you know, my, myself, I might need to, you know, recite my game plan, you know, um, a little bit more backstage. But um, I'll only know when I, when I cross that bridge. Like I said, um, I'm more than happy to use myself as a guinea pig to, to trial and error with myself, um, you know, make the mistakes. Um, just to see, you know, like I said, when I pass my knowledge on, it's through experience. You know, I've, I've learned it myself. I've been there. I've done it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm more than happy to make that mistake. You know, I always am. Just slight tangent. You and I, I mean, probably or definitely me more so than you, but grew up watching pro wrestling, right? You're a huge Stone Cold fan, huge Rey Mysterio fan. Um, in pro wrestling, the walkout, the entrance music, as it's called, you know, the entrance is a huge part of the show. It's all theatrics. I feel like the Lions crowd lost their shit like for everyone that walked out on on that Saturday night. You, I believe for the second time in a row now, walked out to The Trooper by Iron Maiden. I'm not saying that you put a lot of thought into that, but what kind of thought process goes into choosing a song like that? Um, so, I mean, I'm a big Iron Maiden fan. I mean, when I say I'm a big fan, I'm not a huge music fan, but like the extent of my... Um, my my joy for music. I'm a I'm a big Iron Maiden fan. I really like like pretty much play any Iron Maiden song. I want to be able to name it, but I'll sure as hell like it. You know, I I've never listened to an Iron Maiden song that I haven't liked. So that being said, love Iron Maiden. Um, I like the the fact that they're you know they're from the UK. So I feel like you know I, I'm a big fan. I mean, I'm not a patriot, you know, in some senses, but I'm a patriot when we look at MMA. You know, I, I've talked about this before as well. In a sense. I, I, why I've got a lot of respect for, say, Leon Edwards, Darren Till, uh, Jack Shaw, is because they're all training and fighting out of the UK, you know. Um, they're all representing the UK, the UK's coaching, um, you know, because uh, it's a big thing in the UK where people um, feel like they have to go to America. They have to train out of America, you know. The UK's not good enough to fight at the highest level. And I feel like, again, Leon Edwards, Darren Till, Jack Shaw... They're proven otherwise, you know what I mean? They're training out of the UK and they're fighting at the highest level. You know, Jack Shaw just out-wrestled an NCAA wrestler, you know what I mean? And he's he's a wrestler from Wales. Who would have thought this, you know what I mean? Um, obviously, Leon Edwards, I, in reality, is on the cusp of the title fight. Darren Till's always in the mix. You know, these guys, are, like I said, are all training out of the UK. They represent the UK. So when we talk about my music choice, I feel like... I want to be on their level in terms of representing the UK. You know, I want to fight and train out of the UK and I want to represent what the UK's got um, in terms of talent and coaching. Um, and yeah, my music choice sort of goes along, along with that because I made them being from the UK. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's just something about the song The Trooper. 
I'm always I'm always um, tug and war between the truth and run to the hills. Um, run to the hills. I just feel like it's maybe a bit too racist if somebody sees a bold a bold tattooed man come out to run to the hills. I don't know. I feel like people are going to get the racist uh, <laughs> idea. But the trooper, um, like I, said, I like a lot of the lyrics in this song and the beat and the, the fact that they're from the UK. You know. I think I think in a walkout song you need a powerful riff, a good pace, and you need by the time you get to the cage you need it to to open up, and that's kind of what the chorus does in that song. Um, I think it's the perfect song. I think you should stick with it, to be honest. But, mm. you know, I kind of missed the point of such things. <laughs> um, so so I'd like to sort of circle around back to um, these sort of British, UK, English, whatever you want to call it, MMA scene in a second. But just to sort of finish up on this, how um, you say you didn't really have a game plan going into that fight. Obviously, you kind of go into your sort of, I don't know, flow state when you're in there. Like, so you can't really remember much. But from what you can remember, if anything, what was going through your head as you were chopping that guy's legs apart? Um, so, I mean, as far as a game plan, I I did have a, a broad game plan. I, I was very confident he was going to come out and jab me. You know, I'd seen his previous fights. Um, I knew that he was going to have a height advantage. And therefore, if somebody's got a height advantage, they're most likely going to be using their jab to establish this. Um, and he, he used his jab extensively in his previous fights. So he was very good off a bounce, was in and out. Um, so my game plan, in the sense of things, the broad sense of things, was just to counter his jab. You know, I, I know that if I was to go in there and shut down his jab, um, a lot of his attacks would be non-existent and a lot of mine would start to come to come to light. Um, but I mean, one of... I'm very good at countering somebody's jab. I mean, one of the my main sparring partners over the years is my own fighter, Christoph. He's six foot four heavyweight. You know, I, I'm very accustomed to having my head pinged off of a jab. You know, so I've had to work my way around defending a jab. So when somebody wants to come into a fight and try and jab me, I'm a very happy man. You know, because um, within this fight, I show my two two of my main attacks, what we call a cross counter and an a low kick counter, both off a jab. Um, and yeah, so when I, when my low kick, I mean, I, I, from memory now, the very first strike he tried to throw was a jab. <clears throat> and I low kick counted it straight away. And I remember, I don't think you'd see it in, in the video, but he sort of nods to me. And it's like that mutual understanding mm -hmm. that he realized, like, oh shit, <laughs> he's, he's got a hard shin and a hard low kick. And um, yeah, I mean, from literally from that moment on, I was very, very confident I'd got, I'd got his number. You know, I was very confident. Um, the fight was going to go my way. I think what I love about that fight is um, literally every technique in that fight is stuff that you have taught at Lions multiple times over the years. Even there was a appeal at one point. It was there was a clinch and you did like a, a, a shoulder peel. Um, I don't know if you got anything directly off it, um, but it's it's stuff like that. You as as you know people who train at the gym, we could recognise stuff that you did in that fight even stuff like even though you didn't use your hands as much as you know as, as the kicks hence melissa in the corner shouting james use your hands <laughs> um you know you kept that that left hand sort of there as a present you know as, as a threat you know gauging your distance um on when it hit the ground a lot of fighters i don't know maybe it's a reflection of of him as much as it is of, of you, but a lot of fighters would have struggled to maintain that position that you ended up in. Um, 
I know that Braulio actually taught a seminar on that that particular position a couple of years ago at Lions Gym, Braulio Steamer. Um, is that a position that you've you've worked with with him, or, or is or is that just stuff that you've worked out throughout the years in terms of how to deal with that? Because because I, I see a lot of fighters end up in that position, specifically in the UFC, and they can't hold the guy down, and yet you did. What do you think is the difference there? Um, so don't know. I, I feel like there was a. We've definitely me and Braulio. We've we've worked this position a lot. I mean, Braulio's got a whole system around that type of pass and the head control that 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 goes along with it. Um, and especially recently, I've been finding a lot of success with this. Um, I call it a BJ Pen pass. You know, BJ Pen used it famously. Um, but like I said, we, we've done it a lot with Braulio, um, and I have been finding a lot of success with it. But I, in terms of my control, there oh, again. I like to think I've got a good ability to control somebody. You know, I've got heavy hips and a low center of gravity. But I do feel like, in some ways, he was looking for a way out. Like, I didn't feel like there was massive amounts of resistance on his part. Maybe because I'd rocked him with a cross counter. Maybe because his leg was hurt, so he didn't have the capability or the, the capacity to bridge and use that leg too much. Um, or maybe he was he was looking for a way out. Could have been a combination of them all, really. But, um, yeah, I'm... I didn't feel like there was a huge amount of resistance on his part. Um, but again, it could just be, like I said, maybe it's just down to a superior control. But um, yeah, no, um, I'm very confident in that position. You know what I mean? I, and I was very happy to, to to land it in a fight and obviously land some elbows. Um, you know, being the first time I've actually managed to elbow somebody um, was, a, was a very <laughs> yeah. bizarrely happy moment. <laughs> <laughs> do you, how do you practice that? Do you practice that? Um, no, I mean, so when we're doing like a ground and pound sparring, like in terms of rolling, you might get to a position and um, let's just say a crucifix and you elbow the floor by somebody's head. Um, that's one way you could practice it. Of course, you can show elbows. But I mean, a punch is just an extension of an elbow to some degree, if you think about it, in ranges, right? So if you can punch somebody and if you can get close enough, you should really be able to elbow them. But it is... It is it is tricky to, to to practice. I think a lot of it will be done in the fight. You know what I mean. You you you'll practice ideas and ways around it while in there. You know what I mean. Just because obviously you can't afford to elbow sparring partners. So I want to come back come back round round to this. Um, I'm trying to remember the the acronym Emma the English oh, yeah. MMA Association is it. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, Alliance. So. Yeah, yeah. Alliance is cooler, but I think it's association. <laughs> um, so in the UK at the minute, MMA isn't a recognised sport. Am I? Am I right? In mm -hmm. yeah, and basically at the minute, Emma are, are trying to to make it a recognised sport to basically improve the safety of of the events for for fighters and and also you know in the long run you're talking about career like fighters you know rights and stuff like that but at the minute just get it recognized so do you have any sort of thoughts on that obviously dan hardy who's someone that you're you're currently training with is uh, training under is um is effectively spearheading that dude what, what do you think about all that um um so i'm a massive fan obviously um I, i'm a little bit gutted i mean it was around when i was fighting amateur but it wasn't really a big thing um but seeing what Melissa's done in the IMMAF tournaments um, and obviously if the, uh, the the English the English side of this starts to make tournaments as well it's only going to benefit the sport especially in this country um, 
because no toys about it, if I can choose to have one fight or three fights, you know, of course, unfortunately, depending on the tournament format, you might have three fights within the space of a week or a day, whatever. But I mean, I would always choose to have the three fights, especially at an amateur level. Um, I mean, it's a little bit safer because you've got shin guards um, and I've always got quality referees. Um, but I mean, we want experience at an amateur. Win, lose or draw, you want to have the experience. The idea is to get the losses as an amateur and then go ahead, go to your pro your pro ranks and ideally remain undefeated and make your money there, right? But amateurs where you, you learn your craft. Um, and that's where I feel like these tournaments um, are really, really good at, at doing. That's why I'm going to push my fighters to always try and participate in the IMMEFs and the English side of things. Um, just because it gives crucial experience, you know. Um, so, yeah, one, one really interesting thing you talked about is the growth of the sport. The sport is, well, MMA as we know, I guess it's, what, 27 years old now since the start of the UFC. Um, you had other organizations, do, you know, running no holds barred tournaments. You had your Valley Tudo, you had, you know, um, your Gracie challenges. Yeah, ex exactly. You had, that was, you know, basically fights like this, ideas like this going for decades before. And, and I mean, if you really got down into the nitty gritty of it, like people would have a scrap throughout time right but the UFC obviously put that flag in the ground and said okay this is going to be well initially maybe not a sport but this is going to be a, th a thing that people watch um, it still struggles to get through to people some people you know you get a lot of people sort of casual fans um, who might look at it and go oh you know I just think it's either too brutal or I think you know it's too you know, I don't like the holding or like when they hit the ground or anything like that. What is it about the sport, um, both from a spectator side and a competitive side, um, that you think, not that it's not growing, but that hinders its growth? Um, I think to some degree it will always be held back down to the grappling. Um, I mean, because... Punching somebody's head is like a universal language, right? Like, you can have no experience in any sort of combat sport. And if you see somebody punch somebody in the head 10 times, and somebody else punch him in the head just once, you sort of know who's won. So, obviously, boxing, you see a lot of casual fans and they can understand that sort of violence. But when we look at grappling, um, it's very common if somebody's uneducated, they will be completely clueless as to who's winning you know um you know fights will end and they they don't understand why it's ended you know um so i think the grappling will always to some degree hold the sport back um but then even saying this that idea that would suggest that you know glory for example or sort of any sort of muay thai show should be far more uh, uh far bigger than what it is as well right because i mean you're just kicking somebody, you know. Again, it's a universal language. People can understand it very easily. Um, so I'm not actually too sure what makes a sport successful. Is it just the historical elements of the boxing? Um, you know, obviously, boxing's a very old sport. It's universally been, you know, the biggest combat sport on the planet. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not too sure. But I do feel like with MMA, the grappling's always going to hold things back a little bit. <clears throat> obviously, there are people like McGregor and stuff that have, Broke MMA through to a little bit more of the forefront of your casuals. Um, but yeah, grappling's going to hold us back. Yeah, I, I have a, a few thoughts about, about that, um, which is why I run it by you. I think it's really um, sort of interesting. Just thinking about a, a, from a brand growth 
perspective. Um, I, I think uh, sports growth depends on a few things. Number one, the complexity of the rules. Um, you can look at football, and football is far more popular than rugby because the rules of football are simpler than the laws of rugby. Not saying that rugby is not a popular sport, but football, you know, is easy to understand. You can watch it and go, well, they're kicking the ball that way, it's got to go in the goal. <laughs> Whereas rugby, it's like, well, why do they have to pass the ball backwards? What, why are they scrumming? Um, you know, you you can compare MMA to boxing and see the same thing. It's like, well, in boxing, you've got a body shot and you've got a head shot. And it's like, there are different ways that you can achieve that. That's why they call it the sweet science. But, you know, MMA has that and everything else. Then the second thing is ease of access. So you want to join a boxing gym, you need maybe a head guard, some boxing gloves, maybe a groin guard, a mouth guard, and then you're pretty much set. You know, obviously you can invest in better gear and more different types of gear, but you can practice. Whereas in MMA, you need, you know, kick pads. You don't even need, you know, uh, mitts to hit in boxing. Mm. You can hit the gloves. But in MMA, you need you need kick pads. You need, um, let's say you want to do jujitsu. Well, there's not going to be no gi every day, so you're going to have to buy a gi probably. Uh, you know, you're going to need shin pads. You're going to need like all this extra stuff and you're going to need specific classes for that so it's harder to get into and by definition you want to train under specialists or at least people who know what they're talking about which are already rarer so they're gonna that's going to be more expensive and to be fair talk just to put in talking about the money um because obviously boxing's a, a recognized sport an olympic sport it's government funded right so a lot of the boxing gyms um are paid for by the government so the the class would be very cheap, maybe three pound a class, you know, just sort of pay the rent of the building. Um, whereas obviously MMA isn't recognised, isn't government funded, so that will also result in it be just a bit more expensive, you know. Which I think is where Emma comes in, you know, if it's recognised, there's at least a chance that it can be government funded. I love the fact that Lions are now offering more kids classes and more women's classes because it makes it look like a much more inclusive sports and and group of sports i think i think is the word um i mean you also always need a tv deal like i think the reason glory is not as big as it possibly could be is because you know bama and and now uh bellator are on like bbc or itv glory's not you know you need it on free tv basically mm-hmm. um you know and, and obviously the ufc have a deal with bt sport and that's great because the pay-per-views are only 20 quid, whereas in America you can pay $100 for a, for a pay-per-view. But, you know, there is a... Not only do you, in theory, need a TV licence to watch that, but you also need... Not only do you need a TV licence to watch that, <laughs> but you also need, um, you know, you need to, to buy the pay-per-view as well, you know? Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I was just uh, really interested. I'm always really interested in seeing, seeing how things grow and why things might grow. And I think that that point that you brought up about the government investment is a, is a key part to it as well, because clearly there is demand for it. Even in a small place like Coventry, you know, these classes that that are being put on, these extra classes that are being put on, they they fill up, they fill mm-hmm. up quickly. Um, you know, um, some of the women that fight you know, or have started training slash fighting at Lions um, are lethal, you know, and they're getting better a lot, like really quickly, which I think in no small part is to do with your lovely fiance. Um, all the credit in the world uh, for that. But, you know, just having those classes 
available and having a, a, a coach available who is a woman because a lot of women feel like they want to train with women, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to see how, how the sport grows in the next couple of years, two, three, four, five years um, based on that. Um, Lions has been going 11 years. What year number were they at when you got involved? Um, <clears throat> so I more or less joined literally a couple months after they'd opened, more or less. So Lions Gym opened. They weren't a Gracie Bahar Academy. I think they opened and they just had maybe like MMA sort of kickboxing classes on at the minute um, with the idea to go to a Gracie Bahar, but it just hadn't been put through yet. Um, so I was training at like a muck dojo in Coventry. Um, didn't even know what jiu-jitsu was. And I remember one of the guys I was training with um, told me about Gracie Baja. Didn't know what Gracie Baja was. Um, and said, there's one in Birmingham. I was like, okay, cool. So I'm researching. I couldn't drive at the time. You know, ch checking uh, the train timetable. And it turned out, you know, Grace Barbone was just by a train station, five ways, I think it was, in Birmingham. I was like, perfect, this is going to be easy. I get to go train with Browley, the steam of this dude's, you know, one of the best in the world. Um, and then just while I'm Googling it again, then like, just luck would have it. There was a Grace Bar in Coventry. And it was literally around the corner from where I lived. I thought, no way like you know the the stars have aligned as a Gracie Baja in Coventry and I remember like walking down um just to watch the class um and I seen uh it was Nathan Nathan at the time teaching a class and it was Mukun and Raj on the mats um and I just remember they were teaching an arm bar I believe it was and just the technique that was covered in this class was a million times greater than what was being taught of me at the McDojo. I could see that. You, know, you could already I, tell that. Yeah, literally. I mean, just the instruction alone. And I mean, like I said, I was still clueless to the sport, but I, I just knew there and then the technique was, yeah, far greater. Um, and yeah, I was like, cool, like, sign me up. Paid my money and turned up to the next class, got absolutely smashed. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is where I need to be, you know, and just never looked back since. Has there ever been... Hot take time. Has there ever been time when you've thought about completely? I mean, obviously you can't now because you literally have it tattooed onto your arm, <laughs> um, which I think is fucking cool. Um, almost a rite of passage nowadays. Like if you're a fighter for Lions <laughs> Gym, you have to have that that tattoo, um, which is a pretty fucking cool tattoo to have. But was there ever, ever a point where you thought, I'm, I'm going to go move over here permanently? Like obviously you train in other places, mm -hmm. but was there ever a point where you... You felt like it wasn't for you being um, there anymore? No, I mean, there, there was once upon a time, you know, I made a few mistakes and me and Raj ended up having a falling out and I thought that it might get to a point where I'd have to move gyms um, and, and, and move jobs, really, um, because of our falling out, like I said, um, a fault of my own. Um, there was friction from another, uh, I won't name him, but another um, person who worked at the gym at this time as well. Um, but... Um, we got past it and, you know, uh, just the way it is, mine and Raj's relationship has been so much stronger ever since, you know, like I literally see him as a an older brother. Like the things he has done for me is, you know, beyond words. Like honestly, I can't thank him enough. Um, and I'm sure he knows that, but I probably don't tell him enough, but that's just like being a dude, right? Um, <laughs> man, you're yeah. a jiu-jitsu man. <laughs> exactly. But um, no, yeah, like I said, apart from that, like one sort of falling out period, 
Um, yeah, I've, I've never, never, I, I can't even contemplate leaving the gym. You know, I've had, I have had a number of different people from a number of different gyms trying to offer me jobs and trying to snag me. I'll always tell Raj, you know what I mean? Like, but I'm sure he's aware, you know, I, I will never leave the gym, you know, unless a ludicrous offer was to come. That's just saying a paradise, you know, I don't know, some sort of, you know, fancy island where I don't have to deal with any anyone's bullshit and I get to just be with me, my dogs and I don't know, I get paid millions. Maybe I, I can't. I guess I can't Melissa suffer. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, <laughs> no, of course, Melissa, of course, Melissa, <laughs> but the dog's first. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I'll never leave the gym. You know, I'll never have reason to. Would you coach anywhere else, even on a temporary basis or once a week? Or obviously uh, it would be something if you were offered, you'd be open with, with Raj. No, no, I, again... I'm, I'll try and speculate ideas of, as to when I would coach somewhere else. And again, I can't think of a reason as to why why I would, you know. Um, like money isn't an issue for me. So somebody offering me more money isn't going to entice me. Um, I'm building up fighters at Lions Gym. So somebody offering me fighters isn't going to entice me. Um, of course, and it's not something I'd be interested in at the minute just because I don't feel like I'm on that sort of level. Not yet. A few years down the line maybe, but like seminars and stuff and workshops Yes, of course, like I'm, I'm always happy to share knowledge. Um, but as far as like coaching, like on a weekly or regular basis, no, no. Was there ever a point, because obviously you were effectively the first guy from the gym to, to ever, well, to be an MMA fighter. Like there wasn't anyone before you, as far as I'm aware. Um, you know, there might have been jujitsu or kickboxing, mu Muay Thai practitioners, but you, you, you were the guy at the MMA gym who 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 started it and from then you know through like through doing more coaching you you enticed other people and you just you effectively just became the head of the like the head coach just because there was no one else did i mean does that ever cross i mean i know you don't like to reflect on on stuff like that too much you just you know go through your day you you, you graft do, do you ever think about that and think about how like how much value you you've added to the gym over the years? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's it's always like a synergistical relationship, right? Like, of course, I've brought value to the gym, but um, I think the gym's always brought more value to my life. You know what I mean? Um, like it's literally given me a job, it's given me a family, it's given me a purpose. So um, I will always be indebted to the gym. Like I've always said it. You know, the gym is bigger than everybody. You know. Um, like if I felt like I wasn't doing the gym justice, I like to think I would take a step back, you know, um, like as bad as it sounds, I've, I've, I've got, um, old coaches pretty much sacked because I didn't feel like they were, uh, and they were friends, you know, but I just didn't feel like they were, um, they were doing the gym justice. You know, I feel like I said, the, the gym is bigger than everyone. Like the, the purpose of the gym and the goals of the gym outweigh everything. You know, the gym is everything um, and the value it brings to people's lives. Even if it's just Tom, Dick and Harry down the street, you know what I mean? Like we've had, you know, I, I guarantee you the gym has saved people's lives mentally and physically. You know, people have moved from different cities to train in the gym or they've come over here from university and they've chose to stay in the city. Um, and a lot of that will be down to the gym, you know. So, of course, it's, it's, you know, been there for fighters, but even for general population, like, the gym is bigger than, than any single person, you know. So, um, I would never 
you know, um, I don't know, think of too much of myself and the value I bring to the gym. Yeah, just because of what the gym has done for me and everyone else. But, but I mean, do you, are you ever proud? Do you ever think of it? Um, to be fair, this sort of goes back to, uh, I, I said to a few people, um, like after my fight, you know, like people are like, are you happy? And no, I'm not happy. Not until I, I reach my goals, you know? So I think my first part of happiness, just in my fighting, like going off a tangent, but it will bounce back. Like just when we look at my fighting career, probably my first moment of happiness, I think is when I'm, I win my first Cage Warriors fight. And then when I win a Cage Warriors belt, like these are milestones in my career. And then obviously maybe we're looking at UFC or, or bigger, bigger, you know, one championship Bellator for, 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 you know, um, titles, etc. Um, these would be like my milestones of happiness. And with the gym, um, until, I don't know, maybe I've got a fighter in the UFC or, I don't know, I, I'll have to reach a, an important milestone in the gym's, um, I don't know, life um, for me to maybe sit back and admire my work as such. But until until the goals have been achieved, yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop and smell our roses just yet, you know. I respect that. <laughs> I, I definitely respect that. Um, although, you know, not far off having a few fighters in some good organisations. Oh, I'm um, very confident. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, going back to the pro wrestling, yeah. one. Bellator, UFC. Does the uh, triple crown or Grand Slam does that ever <laughs> cross your mind? Um, no, I feel like this because no be... one's held every belt yet. <laughs> yeah, people have held two, but not all three. I feel like it'll be unattainable for some, some, just for political reasons. Um, you know, and and you've got to sort of know where your limit is physically. Um, look, I've, of course, I've got physical gifts beyond that of some people, but. Um, Look, I'm I'm a realist. Maybe I'm too much of a realist. I know that I'm not on a physical capacity level of, let's say, George George Saint Pierre. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, maybe maybe one's achievable, but uh, yeah, three for me. No, no, I'm not. I'm not that special of an athlete. You know, I'm fully aware of this. Um, you know, I'll go in there and fight any fucker. Don't get me wrong, but I, I know where my line's drawn. You know. <laughs> so two, two will do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so who are your coaches at the minute then? Um, so I always bounce around. I mean, long-term coaches, and I'll always fall back to him just because I feel like he, he understands me and I understand his system beyond that of anyone else would always be Jimmy. You know, Jimmy's, um, I feel like, had the biggest impact on my on my progress um, from day one um, than any other coach has. You know, I, literally, my coaching style and my coaching ability and my fighting ability is probably all... all will point back to Jimmy, you know. Um, but, I mean, it'll be a combination of Jimmy, Andre, Tyrone, Braulio, you know, even Raj. Raj, you know, um, trains with Braulio far more than me at the minute and Raj will bring back value, in, valuable information from what he does with Braulio. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head anybody else. And it's probably that at the minute, yeah, from memory. But like I said, I'll always go, um, you know, I'll, I'll train with a coach for a couple months, um, just sort of pick their brain. You know, I'm like a, I think me and Melissa joked about it. I'm like a leech. I'm like an information leech. I go and like leech, you know, just go and uh, parasite some information from people and then, then leave them. You know, I get what I, what, what I want and then, then I'm gone. And unless I feel like they, they bring long, long, long-term benefit to me. Do you think you can remember every coach that you've, you've ever had? 
I would say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would say so. Everyone, I've at least managed to, um, even my poor coaches, the poor coaches, the coaches that probably aren't as good as, again, like for me, like I use Jimmy as a reference. You know, Jimmy and Braulio maybe as references of like the epitome of coaching um, that I've had. Um, people that probably aren't as good as those two. Um, I, they've at least given me one bit of information that um, has been worthwhile. Like sometimes I think back at it and, you know, some coaches have had hundreds and thousands of pounds and, and obviously hours of my time. Um, but it's always, as long as I get one snippet, might just be a little bit of information. As long as I've got one little bit of information from them, it's money and hours well spent. Mm. Yeah, I get that for sure. I feel like having, you know, I mean, I've whether it's been over a long term or just one or two sessions, I've, you know, I've had, had a lot of different, people coach me and over the last five years I you know I was thinking about this the other day I wrote down a list of all those names and I can remember each and every one and I can put at least you know one thing that I've learned from them um to to that name definitely they add a lot of value and even if maybe it's not even a technique or a, a health tip or whatever it is you learn a lot about yourself um and your limits and, and how you learn and and what suits your body um you know whether it's jiu-jitsu or striking or cardio or strength or whatever it is you, you learn a lot about yourself from from studying under other coaches and I think one of the coolest things was um I was very early on at Lions really focusing you know I, I, I fell in love with jiu-jitsu first and foremost um and uh I think it was only your boxing class it was only because you were coaching boxing and I got along with you in terms of jiu-jitsu that I'd started any striking at all um, but basically I said, would you mind if I went and to trained at, at the, this gym and, and this gym? And so, and you said, no, you, you encourage people to go and, and seek other, other coaches and other means of learning. Um, what do you think, um, do you, do you think that's what, that was an instilled belief? Because it's not a traditional martial arts belief mm. that doesn't exist in like, like old school gyms. It's like, you're with the gym or you're not with the gym, you know? You don't go and train with other organisations. You don't go train with other, other, other schools. But you've never you've never said that. Like, I think there's maybe an implicit loyalty that people have to Lions anyway. And so with that, it doesn't even need to be said. Like people go and train where they feel they need to go and train. I mean, yeah. I mean, has it been something that's been instilled from me? I think it's just being, I think, a logical thinker. You, you just understand the value that other coaches bring to a person, right? Like, um, I think it's important to always have like a foundation, a base and somebody to come back to. Um, like there's somebody that understands you and you understand them. And that will always be, like I said, your, your foundational coach, your head coach, whatever you want to refer to them as. Um, but then to go out and, and uh, learn from different ideas. I mean, because everyone's got different a different set of eyes, right? Like, just let's just say, you know, one dude might find a certain girl attractive, another dude might find a fucking other girl attractive. You know, same thing with techniques, right? Some people might, you know, um, gear towards certain techniques. Some people others. Um, same with coaches. You know, coaches are typically only going to coach, especially uh, a super high level, as to what they're good at or what they're good at coaching. So um, every coach is going to bring different value to a, a person. And people are going to respond differently from different coaches. So I think just being a logical thinker, you understand this kind of um, very easily. I mean, where I have got um, butthurt a few times when some of my guys have gone to gyms where I don't feel give any value. You know, like a few few guys before have gone to a gym where I feel it's shit. 
And that angers me to some degree just because I feel like they're wasting time or they might learn bad habits. But as long as somebody goes to a good gym and a good coach and somebody that I do feel like is going to bring value to them, um, then I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. You know, I think this is, this is really important. Um, I, uh, I, I just want to kind of throw this in there just because you're a, you're a student of the game. Um, just out of nowhere, Jean-Jacques Machado. You, you done any study towards Jean-Jacques at all? No, not anything substantial. See, I know the, the, the crux of why he was successful mm. um, with the Nogi, and I like the idea of it, but I've, ne I've, ne I've not studied him extensively to where I'll be able to give um, any sort of, I don't know, decent you know uh, information about him or any decent ideas. But obviously I understand about his whole um, disability as such with his hand and his way he had to use underhooks. Um, and I think that's a very interesting story. You know, do you think yeah, that's feasible in, in the gi? Do you think that, that? Do you think that's a, a feasible thing to do in the gi, even for an able-bodied person to just ignore the grips completely? Um, I mean, it's definitely something I feel like I did, again, being a logical thinker when I was learning the gi. Um, I think I've said this to my MMA fighters anyway, again, go quickly off a tangent. Um, if you've got the ability, for example, of choosing a gi or a no-gi class, you know what I mean? Let's just say... You've got a gi class at 7 p.m. or a no-gi no class at 7 p.m. I would always say, if you're an MMA fighter, of course, the no-gi class makes more logical sense, you know. Um, when I was first training, I never had this choice. It was just gi, yeah. you know. Um, so I'd have to do gi. You know, if it's the choice of doing gi or nothing, well, you'd be an idiot to do nothing, right? For so sure. I'll do gi. But um, I, I would try my hardest to not touch the gi. Because I understood being a logical thinker that, you're not going to have a gi when you fight somebody in MMA, so why am I going to get used to gi chokes, for example, when it's literally going to have no benefit to some degree? Um, so, yeah, I would encourage a lot of MMA guys to sort of ditch grabbing the gi. Um, that being said, I do think there's a time and place for it. Normally, for example, um, where I feel like it benefits, you know, like people that spaz out a lot, you know, people that just roid out of things and all this type of, you know, those types of bad habits that could be built through just no gi sparring. Sometimes the gi can drill it out of you because you know if somebody grabs your gi, you've got to you've got to. Think Mickey Gall said this. What's that? Mickey Gall, you know Mickey Gall? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So okay, he's not had the best of luck in his last few fights, but um, he said this. But he basically said he trains in the gi because not because of the grips, but because he believes that it makes his no gi a lot a lot tighter, but also his mm. transitions a lot better, like a lot more technical, um, which I find is a really interesting perspective. But also, having been looking at John Jack recently, watching him compete in the gi, it's it's really interesting how he was still able to do what he did and be as successful as he was, even without the grips. Um, you know, and as you say, I mean, luckily with with things opening up past lockdown now, we don't have to choose between gi and no gi. But you know, for the last you know few months, that's that's been the case. It's gone back to old school. You either do gi or you yeah. you do nothing like on some nights, um, and you know there is part of me that I do like the gi to to an extent, um, but also I like the the speed of of, of no gi, um, but yeah, really trying to implement that and and not not use the grips. So, sometimes it's just a habit, like you see a collar there, you grab a collar, but like 
you know, uh, I, I find that a really interesting thing that I was studying. I was just interested to get your, your sort of thoughts on that. No, um, no, I, I, I do think it's um, an interesting approach. To be fair, talking back about this, about me never grabbing a gi, I did um, get into a habit of, I was a very good guard passer as a white belt, but I would only have one guard pass, it would be a Toriander, Toriander pass. yeah. <laughs> so I'd grab the gi pants and just Toriander. Um, and then I realised this was a massive hole in my game when it transitioned to MMA, because <laughs> unless the dude had really long leg hair, I ain't going to have nothing to grab, you know, so... Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that was again a, a, an important moment of uh, realization that you really shouldn't just rely on the gi, you know. Mm. But again, like we already specified, it can have benefit, you know. But I think it's a very specific benefit, you know. It's not for everybody to benefit from. Um, but it, yeah, for, for more of the people that just roid out of things, spaz out of things, mm. that's where the gi might have a lot of value. And you said you said on a recent podcast that you p- post MMA career intend to to focus on your jiu-jitsu and specifically the gi more is that is that the case is that yes it is always a plan you see a lot of mma guys tend to go this route you know they tend to um you know do their mma career get all the head trauma you know get a cauliflower brain um and then obviously when you get past a certain age you don't really want to be taking too much head trauma um so jiu-jitsu tends to be the good alternative because you want to stay competitive you want to keep learning martial arts that's why we're all here right we all enjoy martial arts um and the gi just tends to be a slower game so a little bit more suited for older people obviously you don't receive head trauma so just like again just thinking you're only going to know when you actually get there for sure but just thinking of a, a clear path of my my career that seems to be um, a logical way, um, a logical place I'm going to end up in. Um, and that was when I wanted to have my black belt, right? I think this is where I talked about it in the podcast was, you know, I wanted to not get a black belt while I was in MMA because I knew that I couldn't really pay attention to the gi. Um, and then once I retire from MMA and focus on the gi a little bit more, which tends to be the path that a lot of MMA fighters go down, that's when I'd like to have my black belt, when I, I could, you know, say conclusively, I've trained a lot of gi, etc. But I mean, yeah, the black belt just sort of <laughs> got given to me, you know. <laughs> it was cool. It was a cool moment. Um, same night, you know, um, you, well, Braulio, but it was you. you. You gave me my blue belt, right? Is that you got announced that you were getting your black belt. Um, I'm, I'm much like you. Like, there is a certain pride in terms of, like, how, how long I've been somewhere that comes with, with walking around, you know, even even with all the other like blue belts and purple belts and stuff at the gym, you know it's nice seeing people there and going they've they've been here with me for this long and they're so seeing that level grow is is cool. But in terms of the actual like, you get a belt if you've been here this long. You get a belt if you're this good or you get a you know this is what this belt means and and if you get a black belt you're amazing. Like I I'm much like you. I don't actually put a lot of sort of stead into into that. To me it's a it's a milestone in the sense of um, how dedicated you are. But to you, I know you also don't give out belts for free. You hate the idea of like the dumbing down, the watering down of, of the belt system, right? So what's a, what, what, what do you think each belt represents? To you? How, what do you want each, in, in gi specifically, although I don't know if you think that no gi contributes towards you giving a belt in the gi, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well. What do you what do you think each each belt should be able to to do? Yeah, so um, I mean, there's this is something I thought about extensively as well. Um, even when I got my own black belt, 
um, and I think I talked about it to Raj because I, I expressed my, my, my own views of sort of not wanting a black belt when I got it. Um, and then, you know, me and Raj talked about it and talked to Braulio and um, sort of the conclusion I've drawn is about everyone's on their own journey, right? So, right. for example, I am now black belt. Of course, there's degrees on your black belt, etc. But so let's just say somebody down the street might see me with a black belt around my waist. Let's say they'll see Bradley with a black belt around his waist and goes, they're the same level. You know what I mean? Which there's is, black belts and there's black belts. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's obviously incorrect. So I've talked about this before. Like how I would destroy just some random dude on the street in jiu-jitsu is how Bradley destroys me. Like this is, you know what I mean? Like it's un unbelievable how good Bradley is, right? But we've got the same colored belt around our waist and, so, so a lot of people try and justify belts like, ah, oh, he's a blue belt and he taps him out, so he's there for a blue belt. And um, I just don't think that math works because Braulio and beyond that, let's say Hodger and whatever, the, these high-level black belts are going to tap out most other black belts, so therefore nobody need, nobody deserves a black belt. You understand? It's just that type of um, understanding of belt of the belt system is definitely incorrect. So then, what does a what does a belt mean? And I think it is somebody's specific journey, right? So um, you do get some people that I sort of refer to as movement retarded, you know, that <laughs> they're just, they're... Um, I wonder who he's thinking <laughs> of. <laughs> like people that just, um, they just don't really grasp techniques very well, no matter how long. Like some people, it might take 10 years for them to start to understand the sport and then it might click and they're very, very good, right? Or some people, they just never understand it, you know? Um but they're on their own specific journey. So if you compare them to where they were five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, they're so much better, you know, and they've remained dedicated and, um, you know, they've represented the sport well, or maybe they've brought value to the sport. So what Braulio sport talks specifically about me is, you know, how unfortunately with Lions Gym, we lost two jujitsu coaches um, and it was basically, it fell onto me. You know, it was either Lions Gym had no jujitsu academy, as in it was gone, or I had to take the lead, right? So it, it just sort of fell onto my lap that I was the jiu-jitsu coach and I ended up building up, you know, jiu-jitsu champions and MMA fighters, etc. And this is one of the things that Bradley really wanted to give me a black belt for is for what value I'd brought to the sport and specifically jiu-jitsu and Gracie Baja. Um, and that was, again, when I started to realise that it goes beyond just how good you are. You know, it's your specific journey of how you've progressed, how you've represented yourself, the sport, um, how dedicated you are, um, the value you've brought to the sport, you know, have you opened a jiu-jitsu club? Have you, you know, taught jiu-jitsu? Have you spread, you know, the ideas of jiu-jitsu around the world? Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't like to say there's a specific number of techniques you need to know or you need to be a specific level. You need to tap him out, you need to tap her out, whatever. I feel like it is just down to the individual, you know? Um, and you can't approach every belt and every person the same way. You know what I mean? It is literally, you just sort of, you, you just sort of know, you know, you just sort yeah. of know when somebody deserves their belt or not, you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, that, that's why, to be fair, I really love the, the jiu-jitsu idea of the belt system, you know. I definitely feel like there's credit to, like, your traditional your traditional grading methods for, like, kids. Um, I think, again, I've talked to Raj about this in re reference to our kids' academy. Like, I think kids are a little bit different, and when you give them a structure, you know, like, this is blue belt, this is whatever, orange belt, this is yellow belt, etc. Um, you need to know these techniques. I think that there's a lot of credit to there with the kids, and they do gradings. It is a little bit more formal. The parents love it, the kids love it. Um, I definitely feel like there's some credibility there. But when we're looking at adults, adults are not the same as kids. 
I think the jiu-jitsu way of grading is is definitely the best, you know. It's really interesting. I don't want to stay on this for too long because, again, I, I don't hold as much value in, in, in belts as, as a lot of people. I'm much from your school of thought mm. um, in that sense. Um, you're on the, is, is grappling with physio? Is that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. you're on, um, what's his name? I can't Paul. 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 You're on Paul's podcast. Um, I really like Paul. He's a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. I disagree with him. <laughs> um, he was talking to you, and I know this was, what, a year, two years ago? Yes. Yeah, a long time ago. He was talking to you about, um, and he may have changed his mind, about how, for some people, the belt can be a motivating factor to get them into the gym. Um, the belt, you know, it can be something to aim towards, and then you get it, and you feel like you've accomplished something. Now, I do agree, when you get it, there is a sense of accomplishment, um, because you, you feel like your efforts and your skill and your, your dedication is being recognised, um, I disagree with it as being a motivating factor. Um, maybe, maybe between white and blue, because you don't know until you get blue what it feels like to be, you know, maybe with a stripe, but mm -hmm. like, you know, you don't know what it's like to be actually recognized. Like no one, it, I think the stripes thing, especially the way the lines do it is important because, you know, two stripes, you can go to advanced class, you know, um, three stripes, you're nearly there, four stripes, it's like, oh, you're a good white belt. Um, and then you get your blue and it's like, you, you recognize, but, the moment I got my blue belt, I didn't give a shit about getting the next belt. Because, well, firstly, purple belt, for me specifically, I know that's three, four, five years away. That's a stupid, that's a stupid goal. That's a stupid motivating factor. And that's not always gonna be there. And then it can easily get into your head just like, if that's all you're going to the gym for, I can take today off. Like, ah, oh, they're not gonna notice me for an hour missing. To me, I mean, I was saying this to Adam when I got in and I, I was tying my belt on and he was, he was tying his black belt on. It, I almost want to, I almost have to defend the belt. Like, there's, I'm like, shit, I've been trusted with this now. Like, no, no, but there is an element of pride with it. Yeah, um, you got, you got and a crosshair on your back. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's like every fucking, and bear in mind that some of my friends, including Jack for a couple of months, were still white belts. Jack, like, you know, got his a couple of, couple of months later. Um, but it's like now all of a sudden every single white belt that you couldn't beat before <laughs> want to fucking kill you. Um, I, I find that very motivating to get better because it's like, even though I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not a dick when I roll unless I'm rolling with Alicia um, or Melissa. Um, I, I also don't want people to beat me on the mat unless I know that I'm specifically trying a new technique and that's all I'm going to be working with, which is fine. If I'm just free rolling and I just want a sort of mini competition, I don't want to get beat on the map. Like, but I don't want to get beaten by someone worse than me. But at the same time, I'm looking at, you know, purple belts. Take Melissa, for example. And it's like, in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, she's probably going to tap me. But I'm not going to let her if I can, mm. you know. So I don't, I don't give that much of a shit about the belts above me. But in terms of my training, even though it's, it's not a knock on my ego if a white belt taps me that's the motivation while I'm rolling. You know what I mean? Can, no, definitely. Can you understand so. that too? Yeah, because I found this a lot when I got, got, got my black belt, obviously, is um, as soon as you get your black belt, everybody wants to be the guy in the gym that has tapped out a black belt. You know what I mean? Yeah, or has yeah. tapped out their coach. So, of course, um, no role then becomes an easy role, um, which is a beautiful thing. Look, everyone's going to have some sort of an ego, but I feel like a lot of my ego got lost. I, I, I don't think I've told this story before when I, on podcasts, but I've told it to many people, especially a lot of my students. I, I was a blue belt. 
um, and I got choked completely unconscious by a white belt. So uh, not even a, not even a white belt. Somebody who maybe only trained a couple of months. You know, was a student at Coventry University or Warwick University. Um, and I remember I got a rear naked choke on me, and I remember like it was in deep, but I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to tap to a white belt. You know, it just doesn't happen. White belts don't tap out blue belts, um, especially because I was like the main guy in the gym. You know, I was I was the you know the the protege, and uh, next thing you know, I'm waking up. <laughs> and what was worse than tapping to a white belt was being completely choked and conscious by a white belt. Um, and that was when I sort of realised, like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it is what it is. So, of course, like, you've got some sort of ego. You don't want to lose to somebody who's a, a lower level than you to some degree. But it also doesn't sort of, doesn't really matter. Um, but, no, it definitely is a, is a motivating factor because everyone's got a little bit of an ego, right? Um, you know, as soon as they got your black belt, your blue belt, your purple belt, you don't want to lose to anybody below you. And there are going to be some people that, you know, white belts, blue belts, purple belts, whatever, whoever's below you that are training like monsters. Yeah. You know what I mean? That are training like absolute monsters and they're, they're gunning for you. You know, some of them might be gunning for you or gunning for competitions, but they're on your tail. You know what I mean? You've got to keep up with them, otherwise you're just going to sink. You know what I mean? So it's, um, no, I agree. I, I get super excited when, when I see people who've just come to the gym and they're clearly either talented or they've trained before, but not officially. And, and you know, you roll with them and it's like, they're probably above what their belt says they are. Mm-hmm. And, and even if maybe they're not, they're not quite there yet and there's like holes in the game that you can exploit, I get super excited when I see that, especially when it's someone your own size, because it's like, I'm going to train with you for years and this is going to be back and forth and we're going to make each other better, even if they're a new person. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Cooksey was like that for me. Um, you know, uh, Mikey came in at the same time as me. He, you know, he, he, he was like that. Um, as soon as Jack and I sort of settled down in terms of uni and he came back, Jack and I, like, started rolling together and just got like that. You know, Jordan, mm-hmm. new kid Jordan, I love rolling with him. Yeah, he's very good. He's very good. And he shouldn't be, but he mm-hmm. is. And, you know... To me, I look at that as like, while we're rolling, I'm not gonna let this kid tap me. Mm. As soon as he, like, I don't think he has tapped me, but as, but if he as soon as he taps me, I'm not gonna be like, damn that motherfucker tap me. Like like no, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like let's go again. You know, I love that. I I genuinely love that that sort of spirit. I I don't understand when people like when people get upset if they get tapped by a lower belt because you know, as we said before, there's black belts and there's black belts and. You know, there's stories of, I don't know if it was Nate or Nick Diaz when they were a purple belt tapping black belts. And it's just like, it doesn't, that's not what it's supposed to mean. Um, but at the same time, during the role, that's, it gives me motivation because it's like, mm-hmm. I've been trusted with this, you know. Um, and also, I think part of it is when I came in, the blue belts were Wilson and Jake. And those are some fucking, yeah. you know, shoes to fill. <laughs> um have you been keeping up with the ultimate fighter um yeah i think i'm maybe on episode four so i might be one or two episodes behind but i have been watching it yes what what do you think i mean i know that you used to be a fan of the ultimate fighter especially the 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 uk season i mean look when when we watch the ultimate fighter i mean we look for for two things really obviously you're looking for your up-and-coming talent um of course your prospects and it's always interesting to see how they are outside of the fight you know what i mean to see them in like a home environment as such and see how their personalities are but also you want to see a little bit of drama 
that's why there's a reality TV sort of aspect to it. And as soon as I saw the two coaches, I was a little bit deflated because I think there was talk of like Colby Covington and yeah, Mazadal yeah. and you all At one know. point it was Izzy and yeah, uh, what's his name? Maybe Paul Acosta. Paul Acosta, or, yeah. And instantly like, this is going to be a great season because there is like genuine hatred and there's a little bit of smack talk. Again, you, you want that element of um, reality TV, you know? Um, but yeah, so... I just, Volkanovski and uh, Ortega, neither of them have been known for like having massive personalities and having a bit of drama there. So I did, I wasn't too hyped for this season. And so far, none of the fights have been spectacular. There's been nothing really, you know, um, nothing to shout home about. Still to this day, it was the first season I ever watched. But the UK versus USA season is my favourite season. That was Dre's season. Exactly. It's it's the first thing I ever watched of MMA properly and maybe this is it, maybe there's a bit of nostalgia there, but um, I just loved um, the team camaraderie that we've seen with the UK guys and the fact that the UK come in and smash USA and nobody expected it. The USA guys didn't expect it. Obviously you got Michael Bisping and, and Dan Henderson, they had genuine hatred to each other um, and Michael Bisping is just a character in himself and I just, I just, I still feel like this is one of the best seasons. Don't get me wrong, season one, of course, as well. Like you know, um, that would always be up there as one of the greatest. Um, and I think Nate Diaz season was pretty spectacular as well from memory because they actually had a street fight in the house. That was always good fun. But um, yeah, at the minute this 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 season, I, I'm I'm not I'm not too hyped about. <laughs> I'm a fan of the Julian Lane season. Yes, <laughs> I told you. Oh, I've told you that story a million times. He's but, doing well in BKB now as well. He's he is. Doing yeah, well. I don't keep up with him. I think I think I've still got him on Facebook. Mm. I'm not sure. <laughs> he, uh, I met him in the pub at an open mic one time, oh, and I, I sang the um, "There's Only One Conor McGregor" song, and he and his mate were telling us all about. Uh, how they they train with Thug Rose? You know Rose Namajunas. I'm like, yeah, I know Rose Namajunas. Oh, we train. She's our girl. We train with her, and they're in town for some bare knuckle boxing thing. And uh, I invited them to my house to watch. Um, I think Rose was competing, but it, it might have been Bisping GSP. I'm not sure. But I invited them to my house to watch it on on the Saturday night. This was on the Thursday that I met them. Um, I went into the gym on Friday. I um, showed the picture that I'd taken with the two guys, including Julian Lane, um, to to you. And you were like, you cannot let that person in your house. <laughs> let me back, bro. Yeah, let me back, bro. I will let you back. I do let you back, bro. Let me back again, bro. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that that was a that was a weird night. You, that was in the town cry. Like, you, who the fuck? What the fuck? That's just weird. Were you? Um, I, I mean, obviously, you would have met Dre after after the Ultima fire. Were you a bit starstruck at all? Did you oh, recognise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. Um, it was very, I've, again, I've talked about this before. It's just how, how again... Andre, one of this is, by the way. Yes, how, how, it was almost, I don't know, maybe it's cliche. It was almost like meant to be, right? The first ever, um, you know, experience. Like I said, I'd seen little clips of like Cage Rage, I think, um, like on the internet, but nothing substantial. Not like a full MMA fight, just little clips, little highlights and pictures of MMA fighters. But the first actual MMA I watched was UK versus USA and it just happened to be Andre's season. And then the fact that he's been such a, a substantial part of my MMA career is, I don't know, it's still bananas to this day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's cool. It's, it's cool. Especially the way that you talk about Andre. Like, like, yeah. like I've said it before, Andre is the nicest guy I've ever met. Bar mucking, you know. Um, like literally, 
Andre is the shit off your back cupboard. He, he got he was viral on Facebook at one point. I don't know if you ever knew. You know, um, like somebody took a picture of him behind. He apparently like dropped all his bags and helped like an old lady across the road. And then somebody took like a picture of like it was on like Spotted Leicester years ago. Like, oh, just seen this really nice guy help an old lady across a busy road. Just want to give a shout out. Then all the comments like, this is Andre Werner. This is a UFC fire. You know, it just goes to show that cage fighters are, are really nice. Like, and on several times, you know, like I remember once. I didn't have any sliders and I was going to walk to the cage barefoot and Andre took his trainers off, gave yeah. me his trainers. You know, I, I remember another time, you know, being you know an amateur, I didn't know that you, I, uh, you couldn't have pockets on your fucking fight shorts. I didn't have any fight shorts. He took his shorts off, gave me his shorts. You know, he's just such, such a nice guy. It's honestly like, I can't even put to words how nice he is. You know, he's a genuine, genuine heart of gold. Yeah, it's 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 cool that he's coming back. He's this week, right? Mm-hmm. He's coming back this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing him. I don't know him as well as Jimmy, um, but uh, I've always enjoyed training with him. He's got a very interesting style when he, te- especially when he teaches wrestling. You know, long warm ups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then it's just playful. It's all playful after that. Yeah. If you can get through the warm up, you've got a really good session. You know, to go. Um, and I remember feeling because at the time, last time I trained with him, I was I was actually in some good shape. I remember feeling like. The warm up didn't actually last that long. And I was like, this, this, I, I've won. Like, everyone else is like gassed and I'm like doing super well. Um, and then, yeah, and yeah, I, I, I love the way he teaches as well. Um, and I just like having him around. Um, mm-hmm. It was good to see him on the, uh, the Saturday night um, when you guys fought. Um, I will say on that uh, Cage Rage note, Cage Rage used to be showed on a network, I believe it was called the Fight Network. Mm. Um, it was on Sky. It was like, what, what was Sky uh, Sky Sports like four something? So it would have been channel like four one two. <laughs> um, and the Fight Network also showed TNA wrestling, TNA Impact. Um, and every time Impact would finish, fucking this shitty like what I thought was just bad pro wrestling, like <laughs> cage <laughs> cage shit was on. And I'm just like, why aren't they throwing each other into the cage? They're just punching each other. Um, yeah. I'd like to go back and watch some of that. Because, I, I mean, I probably saw Andre, like, without knowing yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the greats, a lot of the greats in, in, in like, uh, UK MMA history would have fought on, you know, Cage Rage. They folded, right? Do you know when they folded? I, I don't know if they actually folded. I think they ended up changing to... Uh, I can't say remember. Bama now. <laughs> no, yeah, there was, um, it was definitely another promotion. I think it ended up just sort of organically changing names or changing promoter or something they probably did some dodgy stuff that's normally what fight shows do you know cleaning up their taxes or avoiding taxes god knows what they did but i'm very certain it it might still be around today just under a different name but don't quote me on that i think it is um in january you did a podcast uh who was it with do you remember this year yes combat thought combat yes yeah yeah. you were talking about breaking down um uh, Jose Aldo. Mm-hmm. How did have you finished your your breaking down of Jose um, Aldo? So what this got any hot takes? What this taught me is I'm terrible with technology, and um, <laughs> any sort of editing process it takes me about a hundred years just to get about thirty seconds of editing. So I've, I I quickly gave up any sort of idea of doing an actual like YouTube breakdown. I mean, I've got all the notes. I've got a lot of like couple of seconds snippets of Jose Aldo's main techniques but I just couldn't put it on a piece of on on a 
computer. I mean, a first first problem. I don't actually have a computer, so I'm trying to do it all on my phone. Um, and then B, I'm I'm borderline retarded when it comes to technology. You know, uh, me and technology don't go well. Uh, this is why I'm blessed to have Russell as my brother because he's like. He's my technical advisor. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, yeah. Who is not here, by the way? <laughs> yeah, this I messaged him about doing this and uh, like he seemed super keen when I first messaged him. And then I was like, yeah, we're looking at doing it on this day. And he just didn't message back. So. <laughs> He's not known for early mornings. I won't deny this. Initially, it wasn't going to be an early morning. <laughs> I do like my mornings. I feel like I function better in the mornings. I mean, I don't really? like it when I wake up. You I always said you're not a morning person. I'm, though. I'm borderline suicidal. You know, I normally sit at the end of the bed <laughs> contemplating life, like, what is the point of this? I think I'm just going to sit around and do nothing, you know, maybe sit on benefits and just mooch about. But then... Hey, I did it for a number of years. <laughs> Fuck it, it's great. The depression, you know, isn't great, but the uh, the free money is... <laughs> but yeah, then, then I only get up out of bed, get some coffee, and I'm sat and I'm good to go. But, um, oh yeah, well, back to Jose, Jose Aldo. Aldo. Um, I would say, and it's why, I mean, I'm... Inherently had a good low kick counter and a good cross counter. Um, just organically, I went this way. Um, and it was when I was training actually in uh, Ronin, Ronin in Birmingham. And it was um, for some reason, um, I'd always got a fantastic low kick. I just didn't throw it a lot in sparring. And I'm not too sure why. Just stopped it almost. And maybe because it almost feels like a cheat, you know, in Street Fighter or Tekken or whatever, you crouch down and just low kick people. Maybe it just felt like it was too easy. You know what I mean? Maybe that's why I stopped. I don't know. Um, but I remember Silk, Silk, the head coach at Ronin MMA in Birmingham, was like, dude, like, low kick more. Like, you want to be like Jose Aldo. And then that was why I went back and watched every single Jose Aldo fight um, and then realized that, to some degree, my style is similar to Jose Aldo in a sense that I feel Jose Aldo's style is built upon his fantastic cross counter, which is basically a right-hand counter over somebody's jab and a fantastic low kick. Slip, slip the jab. Yeah, so like an inside slip of a jab and you throw a right hand over the top. Um, and why these two techniques work so well together is they look very similar. So when Jose Aldo takes his head off the center line, he takes what we call an anchor step with his left step, his left foot. You don't know if he's going to kick you in the leg or punch you in his head or punch you in the head. And a lot of it is built off this. So he shuts down a lot of your offense with a right hand or a low kick um, and ends up freezing a lot of people. Hence why his fights end up quite slow because then people are a little bit more intimidated to throw back at him um, because they might end up cross countered or low kick countered. And then this is where a lot of his fakes are built up on, his charging low kicks, so on and so forth. A lot of it is basically built off his fantastic cross counter and his low kick, you know? That's cool. That's, yeah. Yeah. I assume you got like loads more notes. Oh man, yeah. yeah. I've got like, um, yeah, about three backers and forwards, A4 pages. And to be fair, this is only, so I watched all his fights and then I went back to then do notes on all his fights. So I think I only yeah. got to a couple of his first UFC fights um, on actual written notes. Um, before, like I said, I, I tried to put it on uh, an actual uh, computer or like a, an editing software and it just didn't work. But uh, yeah, I've got lots, lots, of, lots of little snippets, like I said, of, of Jose Aldo's techniques. And he is still to this day probably one of my favorite fighters. Do you do that process specifically with a lot of fighters? And if not, would you do it again? Yeah, so um, I, I've said that, I was saying this before to somebody uh, in class. Um, I think he was asking like... Um, how do you improve? And I go through phases of enjoying different fighters, right? So I'll almost try and imitate a fighter when I spar. And I'll do this for a number of months. 
and then I'll just move on, you know. So I end up just like really loving the fighters. So for my last fight, it was Jose Aldo. Prior to that, Cain Velasquez went back and watched all of Cain Velasquez's fights, um, and I really enjoyed his pressure-based style and his ability to change his boxing to shot, you know. And he will abandon a takedown and strike as well. Um, and I, I, yeah, so I'll go through phases of watching fighters and really trying to understand them and break them down, and I'll almost try and implement it myself. Um, and then, yeah, just move on. When I get bored, carry on. Who was it that threw the jab to the, the thigh? Ah, oh, Benson Henderson. Benson Henderson. Benson that's, Henderson. That's something I like to throw in. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think this is... Um, Benson Henderson was way ahead of his time and people don't give him credit for it. He was the first man to throw, again, from memory, calf kicks, you know, uh, jabs to the thigh. He was very, very creative. Um, he's got a fantastic fight IQ. He comes from a very good gym that people uh, underrate as well. Um, fight Lab, I believe, or MMA Lab. Um, there's a lot of good coaches. One of one of the coaches that um, I, I, I watch extensively, uh, a guy called, I'm probably going to fuck his second name, but Randy Stanky. Um, and I feel like he's an underrated coach. Like everyone talks about, you know, your Farazes, et cetera. But I think like a Randy Stanky, if you were to give him, I mean, a coach and fight relationship, it's like, again, it's a moment where the stars align, right? So when you look at a Customato and a Tyson, Customato was only going to make a Tyson if he found a Tyson. You know what I mean? Like, he was a fantastic coach, don't get me wrong, but he was the world's best coach to a Tyson. He needed that star alignment of Tyson, like Faraz Habri and GSP. Faraz Habri was only going to make a GSP if he'd met a GSP. You know, um, if you're looking at Kavanaugh and McGregor, etc. So I feel like if you find the stars align with this Randy Stanky, he will be another MMA great coach. But it's only when the stars align. So obviously this hasn't. I suppose it has with, with GSP, but um, you know I wasn't going to br bring it up. Uh, Danaher. Danaher. You know I know you listen to a lot of what what, what his podcast and mm -hmm. what he talks about and how he thinks. Um, in jujitsu specifically, and it, you know. I have a strong feeling it's going to transfer over to MMA as well in the long run. Danaher has developed systems where people want to go train with him so much that everyone who trains with him at least gets better, but then also he has a group of people that he's found, that he's gathered, who are, for sake of argument, the best in the world at, at the sport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm under one roof. Now there are MMA gyms that, that do that. Um, American top team in, you know, uh, I believe it's in Jacksonville is um, in Florida. Yes. Um, you know, that, that there's an example of that. And, you know, old school, um, if you're talking, you know, 20 years ago, or whatever, Lion's Den was, um, is yeah. it, was it Lion's Den in, in Lion's Den with Ken Shamrock? Ken Shamrock, um, that's it. And then there was, I forget the name, but you had Matt Hughes and all them lot as well. Yeah, Frank Shamrock um, as well for a while. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a, a number of different. There was, there was probably about three mm. from memory, like Lions Gem, Lions Den, Matt Hughes's facility. Then there was maybe another one, like three at the yeah. time that were big gyms. And now you have uh, you know Team Alpha Males, a, a mm. you know reasonable example of, of that. Um, but you know Dana has basically collected a bunch of jujitsu fighters, well nogi specific grapplers, and um, you know he's made them like top of the food chain no matter who they go against you know okay maybe there's a loss here or there um with the exception of gordon ryan um what do you what do you make of that do you think that's the stars aligning a lot or do you do you think there's credit to danaher in the way that he thinks um, um i'd say it's massive credit to danaher and um the community he's built um i feel like um 
Dan Hardy talked about this on one of his podcasts, and it's a uh, your gym builds a community, and yeah. quite clearly the community Dan has built, they've all got a similar mindset. Either they they're attracted to that gym because they've got a similar mindset, or once they go to that gym, it instills this similar mindset, right? Um, and this is funny enough why me and Raj very much told off our fighter Garon when he when his interview was released and he was um, a little bit boisterous, let's say. Um, me and Raj. Don't like this. Just to interrupt you there, um, <laughs> I, as much as I agree with you telling him off, I actually thought the promo was sick. Um, <laughs> continue. Well, and I did tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 um, we don't like um, what that, that, that might, the, the type of fighter that might attract to Lions Gym or the, the fact the type of fighter it might breed from Lions Gym, right? Because again, we're very confident that, that uh, it builds a community. You understand? So when you've got, I like to think I'm relatively humble. Um, same with Christoph, same with Melissa, all very humble, hardworking fighters. That's the community we want to build. Um, we feel like this is where people are going to learn far better. Um, and obviously Dan Hart, Dan Hart's community is very much learning focused. Again, I don't know if it's clout. I'd like to be a fly on the wall, but they talk about training, you know, seven days a week for a new number of hours, you know, every day, even Christmas day. Um, like I said, it could just be clout. You know, people are known to just blow smoke up their own ass and chat shit. But it seems very genuine. And the proof's in the pudding. They're all very, very good. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to say if it's a, it's a, it is the stars aligning. I think it's the community he's built, as well as clearly Dan Har is, is something special when it comes to a coach. I don't think when we look at any sort of fighting sport, we've maybe seen a coach like Dan Har. You know, somebody who who's so deeply philosophical and so deeply entrenched in systems um, and in every single martial art by the sounds of it as well, not just jujitsu, um, and has given up, you know, his, his own life in the sense of he won't have a girlfriend, he won't, you know, have any other sort of hobby, um, and he's that deeply entrenched in the jujitsu and, and the martial arts that is paid off as a coach. Um, but then also, uh, I speculate if this is possible in MMA, you know, if, if his training methods are possible in MMA just because of things like head trauma, you know. Um, obviously, there's probably ways of getting around it with drills and certain reaction drills, etc. But uh, I'd be curious if this, this training method is only really applicable to jiu-jitsu, you know what I mean? Mm. Because MMA can be quite devastating to your body, especially if you abuse it, you know. Yeah. And, and I think the explosiveness of uh, a lot of the moves in MMA... Mm -hmm. Um, not saying jiu-jitsu is not explosive, but um, every, you know, if you take Gordon Ryan, for example, every, like, explosive reaction in a jiu-jitsu match that his opponent might have, he's already planned for, and it's not going to knock him out. Mm -hmm. Whereas the explosivity in a mixed martial arts fight can just, you know, you can get one punch KO. You know, you can get your Korean zombie, like, elbow, mm -hmm. you know, crazy finish, whatever. Um, no, it is. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you you just brought up. I don't know. Although he has broken, you know, you listen to him talk about MMA, he has broken it down into more, a lot of people break it down into striking and grappling, um, whereas he looks at it as the stages of the mm -hmm. fight. So your, um, your shoot boxing, your um, clinch boxing, your, um, your, your cage, he, well, he calls it all boxing, cage yeah. boxing, grapple boxing, um, which is sort of how I've started thinking about that. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I, in your training sessions that you've done with MMA Fight Team, you've effectively 
train that mm-hmm. th- those areas. Um, but um, I think I think that maybe that's where a lot of gyms fail. So maybe if the right person comes along, he he could be successful in that. I don't necessarily think that it's Gary Tonin though. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. Gary Tonin's good. Um, in one, I don't think that transfers into the UFC. That's that's my opinion. Um, I think there needs to be a certain nastiness for an MMA fighter as well. Yeah. Like as much as we say that GSP was a nice guy and uh, you know a martial artist, etc. I like to think I can tell there's an element, there's a nastiness there. We all know that there's. A, I mean, that's what his tattoo on his chest, that Japanese symbol or Chinese symbol, whatever it is. Um, he talks about there's two sides to him. You know what I mean? Um, and I mean, again, I do not know Gary Tonin personally, so I'm talking out my ass because he could have a nasty side to him, of course. But from from what I can see, I just don't know if he's got that MMA nasty side. You know what yeah. I mean? Like where you're almost happy to punch somebody and the referee not to stop and to continue to punch them, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's weird seeing you with that, that yeah. eye. You have a different look on your face. Yes. When you <laughs> um, and when you finish that last fight, almost for like th- two or three minutes, you're almost proud of yourself. Like that look on your, you didn't, when you, you have that look on your face, just like, is that it? Yeah. You yeah. know, just like, you see what I just fucking did. I will do that to every one of you motherfuckers. <laughs> and you didn't come out of it for like three minutes. I think it was when your dad came in the in, in, in the cage yeah, afterwards yeah. that it just sort of switched. But um, I get what you mean by that. And I, no, I don't think he has it. Um, that being said, I think maybe George St. Pierre is that his ability is a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it's fear because he doesn't like competing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he hates he hates fighting. And so I think he just has that built in him that he, okay, he has to do this. Let's get it done, you know, as as well as possible. Mm. I, I want to win, but let's get it done. And, um, you know, he just kind of accepts the reality. It's he, you know, he, he fights. This um, brings us on to, to be fair, an important philosophical question. I can't remember who I heard talk about it. Um, and I was trying to, you know, work out what motivates me more. And it was like, that you ask a fighter, what motivates you more? Is it the like the ecstasy of winning, or is it the fear of losing? Because for every fight, one of those two things is going to motivate you more. But what is it? So when we talk about GSP, it does almost seem like the the like the fear of losing maybe motivates him more. I'm not too sure, but um, again, I don't know him personally, so talking out my ass. But um, yeah, for each fighter, one of those two things will motivate you more. You know, and it, it's interesting to see what fighters. For what fighters it does motivate more, you know. Just, just to be clear, you're not saying that those are the only, only two no, motivating factors. No, of course, no. Um, what is it for you? Um, yeah, it was something that I couldn't really work it out um, because I don't feel like <sighs> there is definitely an ecstasy of winning, definitely, um, and there's nothing quite like that feeling, but. Again, I feel like it's almost the ecstasy of not losing, bizarrely, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's, it's very strange. It's like a weight's been lifted off your shoulders. Um, and then, of course, it's the question of, why have you so scared of losing? Why did you even fight in the first place? And I don't fucking know. You know, it's, it's bizarre that I put myself in that situation where I almost force the fear of possibly losing upon myself just so I can overcome and not lose. It's very strange because, I mean... Yeah, winning is definitely fun, but I definitely feel like the fear of losing 
outweighs, you know, the, the, the enjoyment of winning. But I don't know. I don't know for certain. I can't, I haven't quite uh, put it down to it, you know. Interesting. Um, I was talking to Dean about sort of similar stuff to this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think, so I haven't competed a lot. Um, and things haven't gone particularly well when I have competed. Mm. Um, you know, I looking back at, because I've got videos of all bar one of, of any sort of competition that I've done. Looking back on that, I, I know, you know, I mean, I think this is the point of like normal people doing martial arts is you, you, you know, you're better the next day than you were before. And you can look back and go, I would beat that guy if, if we were in a fight. Uh, I, th I think that fear of losing definitely stopped me for a while from competing mm -hmm. and, and almost stopped me being motivated from training. And um, in terms of MMA and really doubling down on MMA, because, you know, I, it, in, it fascinates me. MMA genuinely, as a logical person, mm -hmm. fascinates me in terms of the systems, that, as, as Danahar highlights them, but also the art artistic side of it, because um, I'm a very creative person. Um, the fear of missing weight, you know, sort of was was a, a deterring factor. Um, Dean basically said to me, he said, um, if you miss weight, you miss weight. You won't, but if, you, if it happens, it happens. Mm. Um, and then you can, like, if you train hard enough and you give it, you give it your all, you know, you, if you lose, you lose, but like that's not the mentality you'll have on the day. You'll go in there and you'll compete. You'll do what what you've trained to do. And if you're better than the person, you'll win. If you're worse than the person, you'll lose. And and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't compete. You know, that's why we train. And I don't know. I don't know that. Uh, just him saying that sort of. I was like, oh yeah, like it wasn't. Like the the idea that if I come back on a loss. You know, if it's jujitsu or kickboxing or MMA or box, whatever it is, if I come back from a loss, the gym isn't going to be there talking about you, talking about like that person sucks because he lost or whatever. It's like, no, it's like you you did it. I th I think, I mean, it's an old cliche, but it's it's better to do it and fail than to not do it at all, right? I don't know. Um, that was a that was a really interesting conversation that I had with him. Um, Maybe maybe he has different experiences from from someone like yourself. Obviously, you've been very successful in in pretty much everything you've done, but you're also a very competitive person in that sense. Um, when when do you think you do you think you've always been competitive? Um, yes. Definitely. Have you always wanted to take part in in things? Yeah. Well, if I if I rewind the clock to when I was younger, um, I was not a sporty kid. I I, I remember playing rugby just because like I like the idea of like being manly you know like I remember always seeing watching my dad and my dad was like manly you know um, so of course that was like a motivating factor to be like my dad um, and I think maybe a competitiveness was built of being a, a younger brother so I think being a younger brother and I think I'd love to see if there was if there's ever been like a, a statistic made but I would, I would maybe um, theorise that a lot of MMA fighters are younger brothers or younger siblings you know what I mean I think that that can motivate people to um, motivate men to you know have that competitive edge you know by having older brothers but I think that probably I mean not that 
my two older brothers were really into sports or anything like this. But I think that does definitely make you a little bit competitive. You want to be like the best brother almost. I didn't see my dad, you know, I wanted to be manly. So like I said, I, I fell into rugby um, when I first got to secondary school, 11, 12. Um, but I was not good. You know, it wasn't a fantastic club. You know, it wasn't like it was a massive training regiment. You just train once a week, maybe have a game once a week. You know what I mean? It was just, mm. it was just what it was. You know, we were probably the fucking worst team in Coventry. We, I don't, I think we won one game ever. Like, we were a very bad team. Um, but yeah, so I, I've definitely been competitive, but it wasn't until like, a, I wasn't really competitive with sports until I found MMA, right? Like a, I was all competitive over, I don't know, Xbox or you know like even now like fucking when me and Melissa drive home say if we're driving home in different cars we're almost racing each other yeah I've seen this <laughs> you know what I mean we're just who's gonna get home first you know like so I've always been competitive for sure in like stupid shit but it wasn't until like I found MMA that I was super competitive into sports and I then started to understand things like training and so on and so forth and, you know helping the outcome of, of, of the, the competition via training, whatever. Is there any part of you that feels some sort of responsibility to, to your coaches? And is that ever a motivating factor? Like they've put so much work into me, I owe it to them to, to put the fucking beans in basically. Um, interesting point. Or it doesn't even have to be coaches, for example, Raj, you know? Yeah, I mean, Definitely, it's not crossed my mind so much about the, the coaches putting work into me. Because I think being a coach as well, I mean, I've coached very pretty much since I were a blue belt, I've had to start to coach, right? So I think you start to understand that even if my student was to lose, it's not like I hate them, you know what I mean? Or like I'm angry that they've lost. It's not like, so I think as a, as a fighter, I understand that the coach isn't going to be deeply upset if I lose, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. Um, but of course, motivating factors are things like families and people that come support me and support me, even though they don't come and support me, but support me just, you know, by wishing me good luck and stuff. I do feel like I've got the weight of them on my shoulders, right? So I remember, for example, with my Muay Thai fight, I almost unintentionally, intentionally did this. I didn't sell any tickets. My family didn't even come to watch this Muay Thai fight. Um, and there was like no pressure, you know, zero pressure. But then, obviously, what my last fight, we sold over 150 tickets. Obviously, we've got people watching pay-per-views as well. Um, people that are coming from other gyms that are still supporting me, you know. So, there was a massive turnout. That's a lot of pressure, you know. Um, and it's pressure because, yeah, you, you've got to... You're almost representing these people to some degree. You know mm. what I mean? These people are saying, I'm supporting James. You've got to go out there and, you know, almost um, represent what, why they're supporting you, mm. you know. Um but yeah, so as far as the coaches goes, no, probably because I understand what it's like being a coach. But um, for sure, I feel the pressure of, you know, the, the people I'm representing. And, the, and I, again, I, I'm very proud of Coventry. I'm very proud of the United Kingdom. I've not yet represented the United Kingdom necessarily going abroad and fought. But I, I do feel like I represent Coventry and Lions Gym, um, especially. So, um, yeah, I feel like there's pressure attached to this. Um, as we as we start to wrap up... Um, UFC, who who interests you in the UFC right now? I, I kind of want to know generally, but also focusing on lightweight and welterweight. Mm. So they would have to interest me in terms of there's almost like, a, like an algorithm to solve, 
you know, like a, a puzzle to solve, or like there, there's excitement from the fight, there's a war. Um, so obviously Gaethje, because we're going to war, you know. Obviously Mason Jones, like I've already said, because we're going to war. These, these type of people are a game. They're going to go there, they're going to put the head down. And there, there will be strategy, of course, but it's like we're going to see whose heart is bigger type of thing. Um, but then if I'm thinking of fighters that might interest me for strategy, of course you're looking at maybe somebody like an Islam, Islam Makachev, because obviously there's a, there's a name attached to him now. He's getting a lot of credibility from people like Khabib and stuff, and it's almost like you steal that thunder. And um, there's going to be a massive strategy involved with overcoming such a certain skill set. I mean, even like Khabib, right? For somebody to go out there and beat Khabib, um, if you're not a superior wrestler, it's because you've had a superior strategy. That interests me as well, trying to find what strategy it takes to beat him. You know, what what will it take to beat him? But um, I'll definitely not say there's a certain person that, you know, I'm, I'm desperate to fight them. Like I said, there's a couple of people in the UK I'd like to fight just because I do, uh, although I don't know them personally, I do feel like there's a bit of animosity there on my part, like I'd like to punch them in the face, you know? Because um, I've know I've I've heard through the grapevine as such as what they're like as a character, and I'd like to punch them because of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, when we're looking at the UFC, it's either going to be an exciting fight or an exciting fight through strategy. You know. Let me um, let me read you some of your posts that you put on Instagram and oh. or Facebook recently. Um, many fighters embellish themselves with talk of violence very few fighters actually embody it you mean that when you say that why why put that out there um so specifically why this is i've been talking about violence and i've been using the word violence for a very long time um and i've seen a lot of fighters again like forget the ufc because i think if you're in the ufc you're probably gonna be a violent bastard you know so we're talking more on like a like a UK level, UK pros, UK amateurs, um, like people that I know personally or know people that I know personally, etc. So I sort of know them as a character. Um, so yeah, just throw UFC out of it, just on a UK level. I've been using violence and the word violence specifically for a long time. And now we're seeing like brands like Violent Money jump on the violent bandwagon. I'm, to be fair, I've got nothing against the brand Violent Money, but we're starting to see this, the word violent, violent and violence be thrown around a lot more now and a lot of fighters are using it and sort of I think it shouldn't be a word that's taken lightly you know like mm. murder for example or things like rape or mm. whatever these are not words that should be just thrown around or Nazi you shouldn't just call somebody a Nazi there should be a, there should be a, a very strong reason as to why you might use this word same with violence um, but I see a lot of fighters in the UK use violence and I don't fully I don't believe that they understand what this word means, you know. Um, look, again, I'm not proud of it, but I've worked on a door. I've committed acts of violence on people, you mm. know. I've, even in the cage, whether it's illegally on the street or in the cage, I've been a violent person. I understand what violence embodies. Um, I understand what I'm capable when it comes to violence. And I'm happy to do it to another person, another human being. Um, and I think there's a lot of MMA fighters... Um, that use this word that maybe don't understand what it it is, 
and they just use it for a bit of social media clout. So when I post this, it's um, almost aimed at these, these these fighters just throwing around the word violence because it's almost, it coexists with a fighter. Fighter violence, yeah, makes sense. But not every fighter is violent, you know what I mean? Not every mm. fighter understands violence and not every fighter wants violence, but I do, you know what I mean? I think I people mean, I think people sometimes forget that, okay, when they say I'm a martial artist, not not a cage fighter, it's like I love that. I'm a fan of that, but at the same time, martial arts means violence. It means war. It's fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of point fighters out there, mm-hmm. um, or as you call them, bitches. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, no, I I for sure I for sure get that, and I agree with you. It's not a word to be taken lightly. Um, Another word not to be taken lightly, relinquish. <laughs> when at Cage Warriors and at Graham Boylan, who I believe is the owner or booker of yep, Cage Warriors, yeah, yeah. when are you going to relinquish your lightweights to me? That's a strong word, relinquish. <laughs> not, not when you're gonna, when I'm going to fight for you. No, it's like you've, you've already seen that like whatever you're going to do to them, it's not going to be good for them. It's not going to end well. It's inevitable. Yeah, it's inevitable. <laughs> it's inevitable. That's, that's, yeah, so like for me, like the the relinquish, it's um, the the outcome is inevitable. You know, it's um, it's already happened in in some senses. You know, it's written in stone. You know, it's meant to be. So um, it's just down to when and whether Graham Boylan and Cage Warriors will allow it allow their lightweights to succumb to it that that's that's sort of what that word means to me do you do you ever envision yourself as UFC champ um to some degree no um because I, I I seem to take things step by step so talking about an old UFC champion Jai Herbert um and uh, Jai Herbert's now in the UFC and I've got a lot of respect for him because again he's representing the UK and more specifically West Midlands, you know, massive respect for Jai Herbert. And he seems like a genuine, nice character who embodies martial arts. Um, but yeah, talking about Jai Herbert, I think there was an interview he talked about um, how, again, he like he has his goals step by step. So I think his first goal was, so of course, like we've got dreams at a UFC. Of course, like, you know, I can, you know, sit there and visualize having a UFC belt around my waist or even just to walk out to the UFC and what it will feel like to, tell somebody you're a UFC fighter and to experience that and to you know have grandkids and one day show them a, a fight of you being in the UFC I was there I did that I fought on the world's biggest promotion these are definite goals that I visualize and I'd love to have like I said I'd love to show my kids me fighting in the UFC my kids to go and tell their friends their dad was a UFC fighter is a UFC fighter whatever but again going off like Jai Herbert's interview he talks about like these small goals so like the first one was Cage Warriors and he got it Okay, cool. I want to be a Cage Warriors champion now. He got it. Oh, shit, cool. You know, maybe I want to defend my belt now. He did it. I want the UFC now. He gets there. Cool, I want to have my first UFC win now. You know what I mean? Like, this step-by-step, small achievable goals almost, again, it means that the UFC, to some degree, is inevitable. But then also, you've got no control over the UFC, to some degree, you know? Mm. So by making small achievable goals... We're heading in that direction of success. Um, where it takes you is where it takes you. You know, I can't see to Dana White, you've got to put me in the UFC. You know what I mean? He might not like you. He might do what he did to Ben Askren. You know what I mean? He might ban you indefinitely like he did to, to Paul Daly. You know what I mean? The UFC, man, let's fast forward five years, might go bust. 
You never know. Nobody really seen what happened to Pride happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I think that is an uncontrollable element that um, yeah maybe people invest too much into. Um, and I think the, the idea of small achievable goals and visualizing them, um, I, I think is 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 a is the smart man's approach. But of course, like I said, uh, like being in the UFC and and the idea of like said, passing it on to my kids or whatever would. It, I mean, I can't imagine there's a greater feeling than that. I think that's your um, your work ethic manifesting. Like you, you focus on the little things, the little details, and you just go grind. You day, like day in, day out, you're grinding. Um, and I think that's what people with good work ethic do. You know, yes, there is a bigger picture, but you know, it, you need to you need to focus on what you're doing, what's in front of you. And as long as you've planned that out to your the best your best abilities, you've you know you work backwards. I want to be here, so I need to be here, so I need to be here, so I need to be here, and you've set those smaller goals, then you're making it more likely you ha that it'll happen. You're manifesting that destiny, if you will. Um, at Graham Boylan, at Cage Warriors, I heard the United Kingdom is going to recolonize the Yanks. I'm in. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously the words got out that Cage Warriors is moving over to America as well. You know, Full-time or...? What's that? Full-time or...? Um, no, no. So I, as far as I'm aware, they're going to be doing more shows. Um, and they're just going to have some... Like almost what Imagine the UFC do, but reversed. So the majority of their shows, as far as I'm aware, um, are going to be in the UK, but they're going to be popping some shows over to America as well. Um, again, as far as I'm aware. There might be more to it, less to it, whatever. But there's talk of them going to America. That's more or less a done deal. So as has already been stated on this podcast, I'm very proud to represent the United Kingdom... Um, as an MMA fighter, you know, in terms of represent what we've got here as coaches, is do you think fighters. it's more representing your your sport for the for the people, giving more people in the country in the area access to it rather than the country itself, rather than representing the country? Yeah, itself? yeah. So, for example, when I first got into MMA, the UFC almost seems unachievable being in England because it's like you're told. No, if you want to be successful, you've got to go to America. You know what I mean? So again, the more people, and again, talk about Jai Herbert, talk about Leon Edwards, why these guys are so inspiring, Jimmy Wallhead and Andre Winner, of course, being my coaches, um, but why these guys are so inspiring is because they're training out the UK and they've got to the UFC. It shows you how achievable it is because they literally, I've seen him. You know, he's there like Leon Edwards, you know, I've seen him in the gym. Jimmy, I've seen him, I've spoke to him. You know, I know him personally. He's been in the UFC, same with Andre. So it just sort of shows you how achievable that goal is. And I would also like to show that to the future generations um, of, you know, possible MMA fighters in the UK as well, you know. I think, again, talking about that, Leon Edwards talked about this in an interview and why um, that really impressed me as a characteristic is he talked about wanting to inspire the future generations of people in Birmingham mm. um, and I really respect that because that's what it's about you think a bigger picture you know you want these kids to like I said see him there's Leon Edwards he only lives in wherever you know there's James Dixon he lives in Holbrooks you know like and he got to the UFC it can be done you know what I mean you don't have to move to America you don't have to you know be this unachievable superhero you can just be a normal person that gets there you know was there ever a point where your mum or your dad pulled you aside and said i mean not that you haven't had real jobs i know you very much have but listen jamie this this fighting thing like it's not a real 
career paths <laughs> like we're worried about you or like you need to go and, and get find something real you need to find a real career was there ever was that ever a conversation that was had oh yeah day one day one so well my dad doesn't he would never really say much so not really come out my dad's mouth like i said maybe he talks about it with my mom my mum's the voice behind it so i can't comment on what my dad's thoughts were um but yeah in terms of my mum pretty much from day one like i said i seen mma and i said that's what i want to do i'm I'm being an MMA fighter. That's what I'm going to do. No, you're like instantly they said, you're an idiot. You're not doing this. And obviously my two older brothers have gone to university. Um, my mum went to university, but later, later in the years, maybe late thirties, forties, I can't remember, but she went to university later on. Um, so they put a lot of value. And obviously my sister's in university mm. now. They put a lot of value on. And just to interrupt, your mum's a teacher. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, I come from that as well. Exactly. Where it's like education is everything. In, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they, they, they obviously put a lot of investment into things like university. And I don't think it's something they did when they're young. So it's like, we want our kids to do it, you know. Um, so, yeah, when I when I went and told them that I wanted to be a fighter and I never enjoyed school. You know, I was doing sixth form. I, I went, you know, I did like a B-Tech. Then I went switched to sixth form. Then I was I was doing all these little like higher education courses. I just fucking, I hated it. I yeah. really dis- disliked it. What I did love and what was consistent in my life is MMA. You know, I loved going to the gym. I loved being around people involved in the gym. You know, like I seen people at university or I seen people at you know college and whatever, and they thought they they were like me. They hated life, you know, but they just did it, you know. But everyone at the gym wanted to be there, loved it, you know. They were passionate. It was, you know, something that we all you know enjoyed. It was um, so I don't know. Yeah, my parents were very much uh, anti it, but then. You know, like I said, Raj talked about Raj. He helped me out a lot. He got me on like a personal training course and and helped me get some sort of education that gave my mum confidence. My mum was confident that Raj would look after me. Yeah. You know, um, and then obviously now they've started to see. You know, I'm relatively successful in the sense that I can you know afford to pay rent by training yeah. people. I can afford to pay for a wedding, etc. They've obviously realised that you know he can be successful in the sport and that's what I like to try and tell people as mm. well like go on one of my fighters you know of course you've got to be intelligent about it you know what I mean you can't um, put all your eggs in one basket but there is that success is there to be had mm. you don't have to be in the UFC you don't have to be the world's greatest to be successful and make a career out of this sport you know would you would you say there's there was ever a time where you can where you uh, considered yourself to be poor because of this um no I don't mean like you know, I think po- people misuse the word poverty. Yes. But, shit, I'm going to have to pay this electric bill. So we're going to have to eat less food or shitter food this month. Um, so I've always, like, I've always had the mindset, if I haven't got money, I'll just work more. You know, so, um, yeah, I've, I've never been poor in that sense. Whatever I needed, I always had because I'll just work more. You know, I've always had the capacity to work more. I've always had friends that could either give me jobs. Um, So, you know, like at one stage, you know, Melissa was out of work and I had to pay for all, all, everything, right? Um, So this this is the stage where I'd be working the door, you know, I'd be getting a few hours sleep on certain nights because I, I, there was no choice about it. Yeah. I had to pay, you know, it was either that or I had no money, you know? So um, it's never, I've never like stopped and thought, man, I'm poor, you know? Of course, there's going to be people with more money than me. But again, yeah, like I said, people misuse the word. It's, um, I, yeah, I don't think um, it's crossed my mind, mm. you know. Also, this is something that I'm trying to tell Melissa more and more, like when we look at cars, is I think people put value on things, 
that they maybe shouldn't. And again, it's what I, I try and tell Goron with his fucking tracksuits. You know, it's um like when you spend all that money on a nice car, again, I've got, I say I've got a nice car, but when you get like a nicer car, somebody's always going to be out there with a nicer car. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you sort of get this nice car and you're like, well, this hasn't added anything to my life. Mm. It does the exact same thing as a shit car, but it's just costing me more. Um, it's a word that I used to describe you the other day, which is um, something I've been thinking about a lot, but I've never used it to describe you, was minimalist. Mm. You know, you see your flat. You're a very minimalist person. It's a nice flat. You're a very minimal, but it doesn't have a lot in it. Yeah. Everything there has at least some either purpose or you, or it adds value to your life. Um, is that something you you actively pursue? Have you ever thought of of minimalism before? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. This me and Melissa, funnily enough, literally talked about this last week. How like we were laughing around saying, "I'd like to have less in my flat." You know, mm. I mean, I get really stressed out. Um, like Melissa's seen it more and more now. But as soon as like so, you've been to my parents' house. My yeah. parents are, like the opposite. My parents have got fucking loads of stuff. Typical you know, family house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like there's Christmas, there's decorations yeah. everywhere. And don't know, I love going to my parents yeah. for Christmas. But I get stressed. You know, like I'm sitting there and there's stuff everywhere. You move and you knock over a thing yeah. and it's like, fuck me. Like, this. like I like to just not have any, like, I like to have a sofa. And that's sort of it. You know, I could probably just sit in a room with a sofa and I'm going to be like, Phew, this is relaxing. Yeah, you know? So sure. yeah, I, I definitely, I don't understand why, but it just... Man, I've probably got some some weirdness going on in my brain, but it just it makes me feel far more relaxed. You know, like if my house isn't not necessarily clean, like I got disinfected everything, but if it isn't tidy, I won't be able to do like my to dos. You know, I won't be able to um, you know plan my lessons or anything. I've got to make sure things are tidy. Then I can sit down and oh, not cool. Now we can watch the fights. Now I can whatever do my to dos. Um, otherwise, shit starts hit the fan. So um, obviously, what makes that easier is if you've got less stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm definitely an advocate of having less yeah. stuff. You know. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that idea as well. <laughs> to be honest, um, this isn't me. Um, uh, well, yeah, you mentioned um, being at college and like everyone else being there, there being miserable and stuff like that. I remember being at uni in my last year, and uh, oh, oh, well, it was my second year, but it was my last year as well. Um, and being surrounded by people in tutorials who were, I mean, not miserable for being there. They were super into maths or they were super into engineering or whatever they were, you know, and they were looking forward to going into a career in banking or finance or whatever. And like, if you're into that stuff, fair enough, like fair play to you, you're going to make a lot of money. But I remember just like being asked to do assignments and focus on like careers and focus on like areas of interest. And um, one assignment I had to do a presentation on on something and I chose like the maths behind writing and showing music and stuff like that and no one got it no one understood why the fuck i would choose something like that and i didn't really want to do it either i wanted to talk about jujitsu and i wanted to talk about a gig that i played the night before and um you know they looked at me like i was weird they looked at me like i was mad just like what what you you've got you're doing a maths degree you could finish this and go you will start at like 23 24k and only move up and I just couldn't relate to that. I just like, you know, I had these two things that I was so passionate about at the time um, and still am very passionate about. And whenever I was there, you know, whenever I was at a gig or whenever I was at the gym, I was I was happy and I, I just felt at home. To this day, it's a, a struggle to get me off of the mats because I will just sit mm-hmm. by the wall and just just chill and just be present, you know? 
because you've got similar people there. So again, this is where I'm blessed in the sense that I've worked, you know, as a, as a doorman in, in, in nightclubs and I started to see, you know, my, my old friends that had gone to uni um, had got good degrees and maybe got good jobs, you know, they're earning 30, 40, 50K a year, whatever, but they're fucking depressed. And so what they do is they go to the nightclubs Friday, Saturday, you know, um, a Monday in Casbar's case, and they sort of drown their sorrows mm. and then they rinse and repeat. And that's going to be yeah. their life literally for like the next 30, 40 years. Yeah. But this is why I love the gym because even if somebody's doing that and they're, you know, they've got their normal job that they might not dislike, but we're all in the gym sharing the same passion. You know, like mm. I said, I'm, I don't think people have to, you know, like obviously you're passionate about music and martial arts. Like you don't necessarily have to just do music, just like I don't just necessarily have to just do martial arts. I couldn't. What's that? I couldn't do. Yeah, exactly. What? Like like myself. Like I'm only blessed now that I can now. Like I had to work the door. I had to work in a corner shop to facilitate my passion, right? Um, but I still had that passion, you know. Um, but that's like the beauty of the gym is everyone's there with like the same sort of passion. That yeah. they they all want the same. They all want to get better, and that's why everyone's such great friends in the gym. I've never really gone to a gym where I've not been friends with somebody. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because I don't know. There's just People are there with a greater purpose, whereas when you go to like nightclubs and stuff, like I said, people almost almost want to drag you down. You yeah. know what I mean? It's um, like I said, they're almost there drowning their sorrows. It's uh, it is very very strange, um, and that that's why I love the gym so much. I love everybody in the gym because they've all got a similar sort of goal. You know, but to be fair, like you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a thing. Like because I was speculating speculating about this the other day with my parents. Like my parents haven't got like a hobby or a passion they don't have I find that weird yeah when I, people I, do that I, that's what I mean I found th that's why I was thinking because I was like how do my parents live like they don't have any sort of sport they don't have like music or even a video game or something like this they just sort of watch TV but then also th like thinking I like to think my parents have made some absolutely fantastic kids like if I look at like myself obviously I'm hugely passionate about martial arts and I'm now successful in a sense that I can afford to pay and live just by doing what I love, you know? And my sister's obviously very passionate about music and, and drama, and that's what she's doing at university. My two brothers about filming and camera stuff, and that's their job. So literally, my parents' passion, if I think about it, must have been their kids, right? Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made such successful kids. And when I mean successful, I don't mean earning millions, but successful Happy. in the sense they're doing what they love, yeah. you know? And that there is credi credibility to my parents, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Gary V, um, Gary V entrepreneur, he was on Joe Rogan uh, one time. He, uh, he's very much an advocate of self-awareness. He's not, you know, he likes the hustle mentality yeah. as well, but he said self-awareness over hustle all day. Like if you want to make 20,000 a year, you know, I don't know, you fucking posting content about the Smurfs and that makes you happy, fucking do it. Mm. As long as you can afford to put a roof over your head, food in your belly, whatever, you mm. fucking do that. Um, you know, he's very much an advocate of effectively what you were just talking about, which is I would rather be smiling in my Honda than crying in my Ferrari. Mm -hmm. um, and the cool thing is, especially with like how social media and just the world works today is you don't have to, you know, you don't have to settle to follow your passion. It's a graft. And you know, some people are gonna be successful and some people aren't gonna be successful. That's just the way the, the world works, but like you don't have to settle. Um, and I feel that you're a testament to that. Melissa's a testament to mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, I won't get, get into it too much, but when she switched over to PTs, it's like 
I don't think she thought she was going to be as successful as, yeah. as she has been. And, um, you know, now she is effectively leading the, the, the women's and a lot of the, the kids' classes and, and the fighters at the gym. And that's a huge thing. And she has her own fighting career. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't think that she understood the, the impact that she could have with just, you know, with her knowledge and her ability and, and a phone, you know, because she put the work in with that as well. Um, to wrap up, last piece of content. After your fight, a young man by the name of Lawrence Jordan Tracy. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Posted, gonna need more than a few leg kicks in October. And you resp uh, replied, just make sure you turn up this time, this time, boyo. I promise not to stick it in too deep. Hashtag pray for Tracy. And, and, and that would have been bad enough. <laughs> but you didn't leave it there, did you? No. You screenshotted that and posted it as an Instagram story. With the caption, this Wendy is going to be wishing I slipped him a roofie after I'm done defiling him with a love heart. <laughs> Hashtag violence is my salvation. Hashtag pray for Tracy. You don't like this guy, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the sounds of it, maybe you like him a bit too much. <laughs> no, so um, I mean, look, it's all very tongue in cheek in the sense of um, like, see, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm into, look, I'm a violent person, like, so, and I, I truly mean that, like I said, I, 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 some people, I'm like a nice a guy, <laughs> I'm a nice guy, but when violence is needed, I really enjoy violence, and this is why I had to stop working the door, because I liked violence a little bit too much, you know what I mean, and when the opportunity would get presented to me, I would, um, I'd be a little bit too violent, um, so unfortunately, I'm a very violent person, unfortunately, I've found just the job for this. Um, and this, this well, Lawrence that's Tracy, handy. <laughs> Lawrence Tracy's given me a uh, given me a reason, sorry, to um, be even more violent, and I'm very much looking forward to this fight. Um, look, I, I, like I said, it's tongue in cheek in a sense that he's not said anything like that's going to offend me. He's not, you know, went and slapped my mum. You know, he's not went and said something about Melissa or I don't know, you know, said I've got a little dick or something like this. You know, so I'm not that bothered. <laughs> but I mean, if he does say any of these things, then you know. <laughs> but no, look, it's um, it's going to be a fun fight. I'm looking forward to having a little bit, of, a little bit of drama. Um, you know, it's it's all very, it's all very fun. You know? is, is this been going on for uh, for a while? This beef? Um, no. Funnily enough, this is the first thing he posted about it. Like I said, like um, because he pulled out of our fight. This is why I got matched up against Dylan Manning. So Dylan Manning's opponent got pulled out. My opponent pulled out, hence why me and Dylan Manning got matched, thankfully. Um, and Lawrence Tracy pulled out. You know, it was a legitimate reason. I got a picture sent to me. He had a big old cut above his eyebrow. Um, this was about four weeks before the fight, though. Um, so, you know, I could go out and say, well, look, that would be healed by fight time. But his, his, his excuse was, um, uh, I, I can't spar, you know, because he's got to wait for it to heal. It would be healed by the fight, but he can't spar four weeks out. You know, and again, look, I could go out and say my last fight against Alan Bukowski, I blew my knee out. You know, I, I had a talk. You blew your knee out on the stage. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, right. I blew my knee. Well, yeah, my knee buckled in yeah. the fight. You know, um, I blew my knee out five weeks prior to that fight. You know what right. I mean? I couldn't spar for five weeks in preparation for that fight. I couldn't grapple. My knee literally locked up in the fight. You can see it in the video. And I still went out there and fought, you know? So, there's different levels of fighters. You know what I mean? I'm going to go out there and fight. If he, you know, he's got a little cut on his head, sound, you don't want to fight because you can't spar. Look, the way I see a fight is, and I've said this before, like, you know, I might, like right now, right, I'm full of fucking Nutella, you know? I haven't trained properly in about two weeks because, what, I fought three weeks ago, whatever, you know. Like I said, from head to toe, Nutella, pure Nutella. But if we went outside and somebody, like, spat on you, I'm going to, like, run and nut him. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to say, hold on, pal. Give me 12 weeks. I'm going to need to diet a little bit. You know, I'm going to need to get some good sparring in. And then, oh, I'm going to fuck you up. You, you know better what I mean? be wearing like, the right size gloves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? You're going to make sure we're in fucking four ounces. You better weigh 70 kilo. Like, oh, no. can't have shorts with pockets. <laughs> like, I'm going to fucking nut you. You know, it doesn't matter. And um, so, yeah, sometimes with MMA fighters, they want things to be all prim and proper. But look, the world ain't all sunshines and fucking rainbows, is it? You know, not every fight camp, not every fight preparation is going to be perfect. Sometimes you are going to have a bit of a cut. That's just the fucking nature of the beast, you know. And if you choose not to turn up on fight time, cool. But that's down to you. That shows sort of what character we're playing at now. Um, so, look. You know, he pulled out four, four, five weeks prior to the fight because he had a little, you know, he had a vagina open up on his head. Is what it is, you know. I just hope he turns up to this one. Hey, all I'm saying is now you get to be three and one as opposed to two and one <laughs> by fighting him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's not too bad. So that's uh, October 2nd. Yeah. Um, Golden Ticket Fight Promotion 16 at KK's Steel Mill, which is the same venue as you are at last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we know where the, where the pay-per-view pay is going to be for people to... No, no. I, I'd imagine Golden Ticket will um, post about the pay-per-view. And I, I'd imagine it would be similar to what it was before, you know, £10 or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'm praying by then a lot of the uh, the government madness will be over and done with. So um, it will literally be, you know, full capacity venue. Uh, it, again, it'll most likely be a sellout. Again, I'd like yeah. to think I sell a lot of tickets. I mean, a lot of people have seen my last fight and they understand, you know, how my fights are going, you know what I mean? My last few fights, although my, my last two wins have been very short, they've been very violent and fun, and my loss was even relatively violent as well. So, like I said, like I'm gonna, you know, uh, I'm gonna go out there and it's gonna be a violent affair, whether I win or I lose, it's gonna be good fun. So I imagine I'll sell some tickets for this. So you heard it, guys. That is Wolverhampton on October 2nd, Golden Ticket Fight, fight Promotion 16 at KK's Steel Mill. James Dixon versus Lawrence Tracy. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Definitely, definitely. Um, James, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. We've no done been going for but nearly three hours now. That is bananas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> your voice is going to be screwed for coaching tonight. Oh, man. I um, can't talk for this long. No. Um, no, I really appreciate it. Um, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you for kicking this off again. It's been... I, I wanted to do this a few years ago, but yeah. now we've got the studio set up, so... Um, oh, wicked. Absolutely smashing it. Um, where can people find you? I have your Instagram and Facebook handles here as well. Um, so Instagram we got at james.the.lion.heart.dixon a lot of dots there a lot of dots um, we also have your PT which is at james.james.dixon.marshall.arts uh, Facebook at james.dixon.marshall.arts.fitness and then if people want to book a t uh, PT with you they can find you at james.dixon.marshall.arts.fitness on Booksy Booksy mm -hmm. the uh, 
booking app for <laughs> fitness and hair for, and for barbers and stuff. Yeah, all that sort of <laughs> shit. Apparently, math tutors can't go on that. But can okay. they not? Nope. No way. No, no. It's all fitness and lifestyle and shit like that. But also, oh, it's shit. expensive. So, like, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, can't afford well, that. Today, shit. They, they, they are really genuinely good, though. They oh are, yeah, for sure. Like at soft to boxy, they are, they're actually too nice. They've actually learned just that I'm very much just leave me alone. But they're like at first they're all messaging me. Oh, you want us to do this? You want us to do that? And that? And that. Look. I'm pretty fucking happy, pal. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, You're pretty much fully booked. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you don't need to keep messaging me. I'm all good. I'm all good. I don't need any help. But they, they are they are generally yeah. very good people. So you, you're you're offering martial arts and you're also doing your fitness stuff as well. Yeah, so you know, I'm not going to deny to people. I, I, I much prefer teaching martial art PTs. Um, you know, like if somebody wants to genuinely um, really focus on their, their fitness, um, like uh, Melissa, Melissa's boss like was... Um, really into a powerlifting yep. and wanted me to help out with a powerlifting. But look, I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke up nobody's ass and I'm not going to, you know, sell snake oil and stuff. I know I'm not a powerlifting coach, you know. So I pointed her in the direction of a friend that was a powerlifting coach and she's doing really good things in, in, this, in the world of powerlifting now. So fair play to her. Um, so if, look, if some, someone wants to get a little bit of fit, fit, fit it's not that challenging. I'll get you fit. You know what I mean? But if somebody wants to really, you know, become a bodybuilder, become a powerlifter, or get real fucking CrossFit fit, look, don't come to me. You know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a specialist. If you want to fight, I'm the man. You know what I mean? If you want to learn a bit of martial arts, I'm your man. If you want to get a little bit fit, I'm your man. But if you want to get, you know, like I said, bodybuilding, powerlifting, that type of madness, go to somebody else, please. <laughs> Lionheart, Jamie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good work, good work. Um, Peace with this. Yeah, come back anytime.